0: Good evening everyone and welcome to the podcast. Tonight we're going to talk about characters' wants and needs. This is a integral part of GMC, goals, motivations and conflicts. When you are creating your character, especially original characters, um you need to you need to know what your character needs, but you also need to know what your character wants. And sometimes you can't give your character what they want. But it's important to know what they want because you are shaped by your wants and needs as a human being. And if you want your characters to be three dimensional on the page to stand out and to not look out of place in, um, in your work, whether you're writing um, original fiction or fan fiction, you need to pay attention to, to your character profiles. You need to know what they want, what they need, what they hate, what they love, who they want to fuck, who they haven't fucked, who they have fucked. Um, If they've never fucked, that's important to know. You need to know everything. You need need everything possible about your character. And the more you know about the character, the more they look alive and move in your scenes in a way that is natural and real. But even if... Kaya, go get in the corner. (laughs) I looked over and what did I see? That um, no, we're not seeing it anymore. I, I just <laughs> I'm moving on. Let's let's stay. We'll, we'll just we'll stay on with wants and needs. <laughs> okay. Um, <sighs> um, it's um, dudes. Uh, it's important. Y- you you guys have totally derailed me. You need to stop with that. Um, <clears> Okay. <throat> <Jilly. laughs>
1: One of the things that's important is also that you be able to differentiate the difference between wants and needs. Um, And I think especially, it could be that this was just something that is the line is blurred. But you hear people, I hear people all the time these days talking about how they need something. I'm like, no, you don't. Shut up. You just want it. You just want it. Needs are actually very, they're found very foundational. And often they're very common across people, right? It's the, the manifestation of how people act out to get those needs met varies. But they're pretty universal, you, the needs that people have. Um,
0: Most human beings need physical contact. There has actually been studies that um, indicate that lack of physical contact, even in adults, can be psychologically damaging. Mm-hmm. Um, so like, my husband is, is um, very introverted. Um, he doesn't like people touching him, but, um, I'm his person. Um, and, um, so I had to endure his hugs a lot. (laughs) 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 I'm just joking. I actually don't mind at all, but he is not very touchy feely with a lot of people. Um, so he, the people he is touchy feely with, he is very touchy feely with.
1: Well, the people I know who don't particularly, and I know quite a few people who are a little bit touch averse, or even a lot touch averse. They want they they do eventually want. I don't I don't know anybody that doesn't doesn't eventually want physical contact. You know, it's just it's very it's it's rare, and they want it when they on their terms, and from somebody they find to be safe, like a cat, <laughs> like a cat. <laughs> like a cat um you know so some people only get affection through their animals or um anyway um so if people have different but i mean people have different tolerances people need physical contact and affection all the time but i it is pretty universal that on some level people need contact with other others physical contact um Now, I've always, you know, you'll always eventually meet somebody in your life who denies ever wanting any physical contact, but it could be that that actually is a manifestation of them getting more physical contact than they want, as opposed to they just don't ever need it. So it could be if there's somebody who wants like four hugs a year, and people are constantly hugging them, that translates in their mind to, I don't ever want to be touched, which isn't quite the same thing. Whereas if they were literally were able to have that boundary respected and people left them alone and didn't touch them. They didn't want, they might actually start seeking out physical contact because it's human nature to do so. It is, it is a fundamental need for most people. I would actually say that I've never met anybody who didn't like, who said they didn't want physical contact, who didn't eventually seek it out. So that's my experience. I
0: think that um, people who are extremely touch averse that you have to acknowledge that there are some um, psychological issues at play, mm-hmm. um, whether it be PTSD or um, past trauma, um, physical abuse, emotional abuse. Um, because babies and children, unless they have some kind of issue in play that, um, that makes stimulation really uncomfortable or painful for them, like if they're severely autistic, um, they're going to seek physical comfort, mm-hmm. hugs, hugs, you know, warmth of the, um, of their parent. Uh, So if there are, I mean, people in your life who are touch averse, it's, you know, there is some mental component at play and you need to respect that. You need to give them all the space that they need. Mm
1: -hmm. And let them come to you and they may, or they may never, but um... yeah,
0: not touching a baby can, it, um not, babies not having physical contacts can cause failure to thrive. and there there were studies in orphanages where babies um, the the cause of death turned out literally to be failure to thrive, that they just they weren't getting any kind you know they weren't getting the attention that they need, and they turned their heads and died from lack of human interaction.
1: So it's a big deal. So it's funny because was, this was, we talked about wants and needs a little bit on another podcast. And um, we talked about how people don't need orgasms, right? You don't, it's not a need or something like that. Or people don't need, no, we think, we think, I think we said people don't need sex or something like that. And somebody equated that to that physical contact with other humans is, is, a need. And that's not the same thing, right? It It's very, but there is, that's what happens is people I think can kind of develop false equivalencies. Um, with people need physical contact and then and equate that to, you know, making sex a need, which, you know, um, so it's just That's a biological drive. Right. Um, which isn't the same thing
0: as a need. Right. So, yeah, but, uh, but if you encounter somebody who equates physical touch with sex, all physical touch with sex—you do to, You need to give them a wide berth. Yes, don't touch,
1: <laughs> because if they're thinking that way, that means that you are in, you are you are non consensually on your side in engaging with them in a sexual way. It's like I don't want to engage oh, with I mean, you sexually.
0: Ugh. Nah, dog. Nah. nah. <laughs> I mean, no. I mean, seriously. It's just that's such a terrible. It's just a terrible thing. Um, and I have encountered men who equate practically every action that a woman takes in their presence is something sexual.
1: Yeah. Now men, now there are some men, there's a certain movement. that will tell you that, that sex is a need. You know, we need somebody to bang us. That's not true. Um, needs are very foundational. They are.
0: You talk about the, the the hierarchy of needs, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Food, shelter, yeah. um, psychological support from your community. Like, you know, companionship to tribe. Um, those are basic needs.
1: And, and even within a need, there's a difference between a need and a want. So y- it, it's that terribly trite, you know, terribly trite comparison of like, you, you need food. You want cheesecake. Right. You know, nobody needs cheesecake. I mean, it may feel like you really do. I, might, I, I really do feel it. But um, sometimes
0: I think an Oreo is the only thing between me and homicide. But is that a need? No.
1: No. <laughs> now, your husband might need for you to have an Oreo.
0: <laughs> and that's actually something to keep in mind. Something that you want could either coincide or conflict or or conflict with somebody else's needs. Right.
1: Which, you know, and, and that can be. It's like, well, he goes, "I want to stay safe. Being safe is is a need. I'm going to get her an Oreo that she wants because I value my life." Um so, it's just, needs are very, they're very base. But you can be very driven when your base needs aren't getting met. When you feel unsafe. When you don't feel like, you know, when you worry. When you, or when there's anxiety around your base needs. And so that's something to, to, to consider with your character. You know, do they have, because I do think people need, it's a little bit higher up on the scale from just basic human connection but people need to feel like they have a connection to people they need to feel like they have that they need to feel like they're not alone in the universe i do think that's a need i don't think that's a want i think it is a need and when people feel like they're alone and they're adrift it can be really damaging like you know as in this is not talking about like a child not getting you know that's that's more that's more basic in the pyramid is you know basic human contact that's more basic but i'm talking about like there's also this need to feel like you aren't alone um which you know somebody may want 50 friends but you maybe maybe you need one you need maybe you need one person really solidly in your corner because people don't want to feel alone in the world so and that can but whatever is going on with your character they have to feel like it, people can get really crazy and, and they have to feel secure in those base basic needs and so if they're not getting met a basic need or there's a lot of anxiety around will I be able to meet my basic needs it can drive people to act out in sometimes unpredictable ways so if there's a lot of stress about this is you know this classic right stress about money can lead people to be worrying about shelter and food and um, possibly separation
0: is one of the biggest issues that a lot of people face
1: right so if their security is challenged, that can drive them to do unpredictable things. Um, if your character isn't worried about those basic things, well, then what? Where, where are they? Where is their stressor elsewhere on the pyramid? Is it is it their tribe? Is it their community? If they don't feel like they can trust the people around them, because needing to f- that's a safety issue, right? If you are in a situation where you don't feel like you can trust anyone around you, you're going to feel unsafe. And feeling unsafe is going to drive you into certain behaviors. So, um, I was like, that's so small, but I was like, I could just click on it and read it. Okay. So Kira found us the pyramid, um, Maslow's hierarchy of needs and the bottom of the pyramid is the physiological needs like air, water, food, shelter, sleep, clothing. I'm going to kind of roll my eyes about reproduction being listed as a physiological need, but okay. Um,
0: well, it's a physiological need, I think, for our species.
1: Yeah, for the species. For the for the species. But okay, then the next level of the pyramid is the safety needs: personal security, employment, resources, health, property, that kind of thing. Um, and within that spectrum, the thing is to bear in mind is like you know nobody needs a ten million dollar house. Some people will tell you they do, but they don't. I need that Lamborghini. They don't they need a way to get from point a to point b and they need a roof over their head so this is where it's important to differentiate between wants and needs um next tier is love and belonging friendship intimacy family a sense of connection then the next tier is esteem which is respect self esteem status recognition strength and freedom and then the top tier is self actualization to desire to become the most that one can be
0: and it's in that self actualization that you get the arts um, and the desire to create and to build and to explore. Because if you don't have all those other needs met, if you're not thinking beyond your next meal, then everything else is out the window. Right,
1: right. So if... It,
0: yeah, and that's, let's, that's exactly... Let's, let's look at a character. Let's take a character down. And let's start, actually, let's start with Harry Potter. Because Harry Potter um, actually represents this pyramid in, in, a, in a lot of ways. Um, th- up until he's 11 years old, his active memory, um, he barely, re- he probably doesn't really remember his parents or even his mother until he's faced with a Dementor the first time. Um, he is... Harry exists in a survival mode from basically two years old till eleven years old when he goes to Hogwarts. Um, food and is probably food security probably being his biggest issue. He knows he'll get to sleep and he'll have shelter in that cupboard, and it probably in a lot of ways becomes his safe place because it's really too big for um, Uncle Vernon to get into. So if he can get in there, he won't get hit. Now he's going like, opportunity you can drag him out of it and probably did more than once, right? Um, but I doubt they would have sent Dudley into it because they viewed it as a punishment. Uh, but he wasn't comfortable. I mean, he had a really thin mattress and th- there didn't appear to be a lot of blankets um, in his cupboard uh, from the narrative. He was growing up in an abusive household. Julie and I were talking one night. And we looked up excerpts. And um, something that I had actually forgotten in the first book. Is that not only did Vernon um, threaten and verbally abuse Harry. He hit Dudley. When Dudley complained about about what he could take with him. When they ran from the house. He hit him. So when they're in the car running away from all the letters. Dudley has been... um, Physically punished for complaining about not being able to take his Xbox or something with him, or just something, or his VCR, something ridiculous, right? Um, and so, not only is is Vernon casually abusive with his nephew, he's casually abusive with his own child as well. So this is actually a very violent man. So so because you know he's he's three times the size of either one of these kids, even Dudley, at that point, and he's very casual with 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 the physical abuse and i doubt seriously that was the first time dudley had ever gotten hit because he was cowed in the back seat he wasn't you know pitching a big fit because his dad hit him for the first time that was not the first time dudley got hit
1: no no probably not he
0: would because he'd have been crying and screaming at his mom he'd have been throwing a big fit because dudley was spoiled rotten So, it it could not have possibly been the first time he'd gotten hit. Because he would have been so much more betrayed by it. But he wasn't. He was scared. Because he knew that was the tip of the iceberg. Concerning his father's temper. So, the first time that Harry even approaches... I've lost my period. My period. My pyramid. (laughs) Okay. The first time he even approaches safety... Is Hagrid. Hagrid offers him safety for the first time in his conscious memory when he defends him when he puts himself between I wish um, between Vernon and Harry and take and bends the shotgun and says, you know no you're going to sit down and behave. Um, this is the first time he's had an adult being you know in his conscious memory to defend him and create a safe circumstance for him. And it is often an overlooked um moment in Harry Potter, even by me. But it had to be very powerful and psychologically um soothing to have to have this big magical person burst into this hut and protect him and feed him because he's never he doesn't remember ever having that. And as Harry moves through the books, he, he does, you know, reach self-actualization. Unfortunately, that self-actualization, that actualization, has been shaped by Dumbledore, and it comes with the knowledge that he believes himself to be a Horcrux, and therefore he must sacrifice himself for this world that his that has given him everything the Dursleys did not. He has a tribe. He has um, he has friends. He has people that he cares about, uh, and and Voldemort is is threatening that. He's been threatening that since the very beginning since he first entered the magical world. And so Dumbledore's manipulation of Harry Potter into it, um, onto that path is is never more clear than when he steps in, out into that clearing and reveals himself to Voldemort and doesn't even raise his wand to defend himself when Riddle casts the killing curse. It's actually my headcanon that the resur- the Resurrection Stone was broken by um by the Horcrux and doesn't work and what Harry saw was some kind of enchantment that Dumbledore created and manifested from Harry's own emotions that it was designed to take his emotional state at that moment and um give him a vision that he needed to to complete Dumbledore's plan. Which is why, which is why Remus was there as well, because he, because Remus was dead. Um, but I didn't do that in *Darkly Loyal*. I had the stone still be in, in, intact and being what it what it was supposed to be. But you know, there's something about that vision that reads desperately untrue.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And it's it's Lily Potter, Lily Potter, who sacrificed herself for her son does not encourage him to go and let Voldemort kill him. No, no. Sirius, Sirius loved Harry in his own damaged way. So I don't buy it. But that's that's canon that you can play with however how you want for your story. But Harry as a character, um, he's so bogged down in creating a safe place for himself um, that even by the end he is more focused on what he needs versus what he wants and what others need from him instead of what he might need from others which is why I think he ends up with Jimmy Weasley with or without a potion it's because he's, he's still giving other people what they want ignoring his own needs
1: because that third that third tier in the hierarchy is where his other than personal security, which he got resolved pretty much, you know, once the war was over and all that, once he was an adult, a lot of his personal safety needs were resolved. But love and belonging was where he was lacking the most of all the needs. Because, um, I mean, as as you mentioned, other than food, really, other. His, his physiological needs were being met um, at school well like you can't say his his personal security needs were being met at school but he had once he was introduced to the magical world he got his trust fund and all that trust account and his school account or whatever his money needs were being resolved and he had some expectation that he would to continue to meet those needs so he didn't like a lot of kids with like you know uh, deprivation issues when it comes to the physiological stuff they don't immediately come into money when they get older you know? right so that so it becomes a lifelong thing so harry went you know he he came into money at, at, a, at an age where he knew he'd be able to to resolve those physiological needs as he got older so his biggest source of pain i think consistently was around love and belonging and i do think that that really helped tie him into um the Weasleys, because it is, it is so profound that, 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 you know, more than self-esteem, the need in this hierarchy, more than self-esteem people need to feel loved and they need to feel like they belong. So once you, you, he, he's, you know, not focused on where his next meal is going to come from and he's not about to die or something. This love and belonging thing was a really big pain point. And honestly, he, Weirdly, in in a lot of ways, he had the next tier up, right? Um he, self-respect, self-respect is self- self-esteem, self-respect a little bit different. But he was always he knew, you know, that he was magically strong. Um he had status and recognition that he didn't even want. So yes, he needed to to sort out the self-esteem side of that. But a lot of the piece pieces in the green tier, this the esteem tier, Kate were there in a lot of ways already, but he still didn't have the the, the friendship, the intimacy, you know, I think that's what he was really clinging to because it is the thing he did not have growing up that he most wanted. It was the most foundational thing he needed growing up that he didn't have. And I think that that's actually really important to look at when you look at a character, whether it's an original character or whether you're looking at a fandom character in terms of how you interpret them is Look at what was lowest on the pyramid that they didn't get growing up. That is going to be probably a a point that they're neurotic about. Um, Somebody who who was deprived of food growing up has food issues as an adult. Whether whether it's obvious or not, it's there. Um, Somebody who struggled with feeling like they, you know, um, weren't safe is going to be very, you know hypervigilant about personal safety so yeah don't touch my food right and that's a big pain point for some people is so whatever they're really deprived of in the formative and foundational years the lowest thing down is probably going to be one of the biggest pain points because you know be if, if you have all the physiological needs met but what you didn't have was um security perfect you didn't feel safe right you had food you had you know you had enough you had shelter but you didn't feel personally safe growing up or whatever um that's probably somebody who might be hyper vigilant about their home and about their personal security and maybe not letting people get quite get too close to them because they have to maintain their personal safety so I think whatever's lowest on the on the pyramid that you were deprived of is going to be the biggest problem for you, for a character, not you. But, you know, for a character as, and if the thing that somebody, the thing that is lowest, and I think for a lot of characters that I write, the thing that they struggle with the most, or they were the most deprived of as children, or even going into their teens, is that third tier, the love and belonging tier feeling connected to something, feeling like that they have family, that they have people they can count on. Um, I think that winds up being a big pain point. And I think it's it's a common thing in writing that we explore characters who are reaching out for those things that haven't gotten them enough. And I think we connect to characters that exhibit a lack of that. You know, you, you want to give them a hug. You want to give them a friend. It, Tony is definitely lacking in that third tier. Um
0: I think that Tony um in particular it would be a really interesting character to explore for that because he has basics um and he has the pretense of a tribe.
1: Hold on. I, I know why. Uh we have somebody who can't hear couldn't hear us earlier. It's cuz they're deafened. Oh. I can't undo it cuz it's done on their end. Who is it? Could somebody type up to Mad Queen that they've got their headphones deafened and they need to they need to put they need to un, they need to themselves if they want to be able to hear
0: oh yeah i see it yeah
1: <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> okay so while you guys figure right, that help, out help help <laughs> get her sorted out so i don't have to type we'll go back to talking about tony um
0: but tony doesn't have the um he he has the pretense of a tribe um, and the pretense of friendships um, that that quickly turn sour, um, especially like with Abby and Tim. Mm-hmm. And-
1: well, look, look at so if you look at that third tier, look at but if you go all the way back to childhood, right? We know he had his foundational stuff. His parents, at least, on some of them were wealthy when he was young, so he didn't have a problem with um the the foundational stuff. He was getting food, water, clothes that stuff was being met personal safety might have been an issue especially depending on how you interpret his father um and his mother to be honest but um we look at the next here he's a kid who's probably deprived of contact with other kids for the most part his mother treated him like a doll rather than a child she died when he was young his father was an absent father at best and an abusive father at worst. after his mother dies he's shipped off to boarding school and then military academy um he didn't do well with other kids in military academy that eventually does come up in canon because he was bullied and he didn't come into his own until college so he struggled with that third tier his whole life until college so this is going to be a problem for him um
0: and I think that when you struggle that long, uh, you know, into adulthood from um to gain that sense of belonging, that it creates um some deep psychological issues with um abandonment and um codependency. Uh, and it it the relationship with Gibbs and him is so him and Gibbs is, is it Gibbs him, him or Gibbs? It doesn't matter. Um it's so ugly. Because Gibbs uses this codependency that Tony has against him.
1: Yeah. And even if Gibbs doesn't know what the root of it is, um, it's sort of irrelevant. Gibbs Gibbs is really good at teasing out somebody's weak spot. and Exploiting it. Yeah, exploiting it. Um, and he got particularly good at it after the... Um, I, up, up until Gibbs kind of got his head injury i'm i'm honestly willing to write a lot of gibbs defects off his traumatic brain injury the effect of a traumatic brain injury because i think that in in a way you could just consider him a bad leader or a bad um not good at developing people because not everybody who's a good agent is going to be a good manager or a good leader it's just there's different skill sets right and gibbs went from being in a partner type role or even working independently to leading a team and not everyone is slated is cut out for that. And I think that Tony actually is what made him successful as a leader, but he wasn't actually a good leader. So, and then Gibbs gets, you know, whacked in the head and all of a sudden the deficiencies that were kind of, kind of building because of Gibbs poor leadership became extremely dysfunctional because Gibbs started becoming, he started exploiting, um, all of these things that he had observed about people over the years. Um, so it is a big deal for a character like Tony, which is why we talk about so often that if you give Tony somebody outside of NCIS uh, to to fill that need that he's only getting filled at work, it's going to be dramatically different for him. Because you 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 when you prop up a need and you get you satisfy it and somebody's getting that dealt with his needs are going to go higher up the totem pole right so let's move up to what's next right so let's that's what we talked about last night about him giving ian right we talked a lot about if ian's involved in tony's life early on that tony's going to be different so then we look at we had another podcast a while back about tony dreams a little bigger we had two podcasts about that so if tony's getting his needs for love and belonging met outside of ncis in a more functional healthy way well what's next on the a hierarchy, esteem, right? Status, recognition, self respect, respect, self esteem. Those things become more important to somebody who has a good connection and, and a good sense of love and belonging. So and Tony, freedom. And right. And freedom. So then so then you've enabled a Tony who might want a promotion, who might want to be, you know, a special agent in charge, or who might want to move to a different agency, or who might want to run a big intelligence program. Whatever. You know, I mean that becomes more important once the the need underneath it is being satisfied.
0: A lot of people with self esteem issues don't believe they're entitled to a certain level of success. And um, you get that imposter syndrome. Mhm, um, that and that belief that they're that they're living a lie that that they're getting things that, that they have not earned, um that they aren't as good as they think they are. um I think a lot of women suffer from this because we are um kind of a lot of us are encouraged to downplay our skills and not to brag to right. be to be humble about our talent, modest, modest. that's the word I'm looking for that was not coming. Which is bullshit,
1: uh, so especially false modesty. False modesty is bullshit. I mean, honestly, if you're somebody who likes Gibbs as a character, just focus on reading stories that are set in the first couple seasons, and you'll be golden. Because he wasn't <laughs> an, he wasn't an intolerable asshole back then. So, um,
0: yeah, getting before the bomb it's very helpful. Or but I do write him think, in a complete AU.
1: Or, yeah, or write him in an AU. Um, I do think that one of the things that's important to realize when you're thinking about wants and needs when you're developing a character is if they've got a major pain point low on the pyramid. If it's lack of shelter or if they've got extreme financial stresses. Because financial stresses are kind of a little bit in the safety areas. And that's... That, that's second to the bottom tier, but it can lead to worry about the, the tier below. Um, it can lead to, you know, if you're worried about, if you're living month to month and you're worried about, you know, the next paycheck or will you get fired or whatever. So your safety needs, that's in safety, but everybody worries, you know, the worry is that you're not going to be able to meet the needs below it, right? You're not going to have shelter. You're not going to have food. You're not going to have, you know, clo- you're not going to have clothes, you know, whatever obviously you're going to have air. Um, So when somebody's really worried or they're really lacking in, especially one of the, I would say the bottom two tiers, they're not working on that top tier. And so when you have a character trying to, you know, become the best that they can actually be, but they're worried about money, I think it is probably strikes a little bit of a discordant note about in terms of the characterization, because if they're really worried about money, you know, are they really focused on self-actualization when they're just worried about where the next paycheck is going to come from? So you just got to balance that, that, you know, if you want to focus on a character who is working towards that self- actualized thing or who is working on the, the esteem tier or whatever, That if they have got major issues around, you know, where they're going to get the next paycheck from, and then therefore where they're going to sleep at night, it it doesn't seem plausible. Not impossible, but it's less plausible. Because the bottom line is, especially the bigger the stress is on those two bottom tiers, people fall apart.
0: There are psychological issues at play. If you have um, a character who's moved from childhood into adulthood and they're still at the bottom of the pyramid. Yeah. Um, And these psychological issues can be overwhelming, mentally damaging, um, and difficult to overcome. Which is why sometimes if you encounter somebody who grew up very, very poor and they're even in a stable financial situation, they will be extremely frugal to the point of um, it being a pathological issue because they're afraid of going back. Mm -hmm. So they spend as little as possible. They put all their money away. Um, And on the outside, they may look like they're cheap or... uh, A penny pincher or um, something like that. But it's because they grew up in a situation where they didn't know where their next meal was coming from. And their psychological need to, to not let that happen is shaping every moment of their adult life. They don't rock the boat at work. They accept unfair circumstances at work because they don't want to lose their job. They hoard food. Yeah.
1: I think I, hoarding, yeah, hoarding food. I think an obsession with looking, with looking wealthy when you're not, is related to something else. I think that's related to shame around your life circumstances. As and that's an
0: esteem to, issue.
1: Yeah, which is as opposed to. So if you had, if you were on, the, if you were grew up poor, but you had a home, you had food. Maybe it wasn't the food you would have wanted, um, and you were like shamed for being the poor kid or being, you know, like poor trash in your school or whatever. Um, you know. Why you know what was it too proud to whitewash too poor to paint or something like that? that Yeah, Um, that's somebody who's going to have a potentially uh, uh, an issue with looking like they're wealthy even if they're not. They're going to want to look better than they are is because of the shame and humiliation that they felt around being poor. but I think if when that, that's related. yeah, I think that's related to something a little bit different than not actually getting the need met. And one of the things that can feed into is when somebody's not getting their base needs met, their base physiological needs met, or when they're worried about get, not getting their base physiological needs met, it can drive them to li- stay in circumstances that are not good for them to keep getting those needs met. Um, it's not the only reason why maybe a woman stays with an abuser or something like that, but it's a factor. Right. How, how am I, because it, it, it's an unfortunate statistic that a lot of women who do eventually, who leave their husbands wind up in, in shelters with their kids, right? There are special shelters devoted to, you know, in in many cities for women and and kids because they have, they cease to be able to get their physiological needs met when they leave in the abusive partner. So, um, it can drive people to stay, uh, in in a bad situation, and so you got to really think about how all these things play together. If you're depriving your character that you're writing of something, I would say in the bottom two tiers, are really really, it's really hard to have someone who's, um, highly functional when those two bottom tiers are in jeopardy. So it's just really important that like I've I tend to never write Tony having financial issues, but I've I've read him in stories where he's got dire financial issues, which I don't actually feel jives with Canon. Now I write him, I don't think the fact the way I write him jives with Canon either, which is that he's got like a trust fund that he doesn't do much with. I don't feel like that really jives with Canon either. but what I do because the thing is but in Canon he actually had the money, he would save significant amounts of money for trips and pay for because we saw him shell out all the money he'd save for vacation for a several thousand dollar hotel bill for his father. So just so his father could have um, not have his pride wounded. And, you know, so that doesn't jive with somebody who's got extreme stress around money. They don't give it to a neglectful parent. But anyway, um, but but I've actually there are stories I've run across where Tony's like working as a prostitute on the weekends to try to make money to make ends meet. And
0: he's obviously wearing custom tailored suits.
1: Yeah, so that just doesn't. It's like, come on, come on, really? Prostitution? He's that desperate?
0: You don't wear tailored suits if you're um, desperate for money.
1: And if he's that desperate for money, if he's that desperate for money that he's working at NCIS during the week and working as a prostitute on the weekends, he's not going to be on his A game. He can't be because that's a lot of that's a lot of money stress, quite frankly.
0: But also, keep in mind when you perform when you do a storyline like this, it is ridiculous. Because someone with that kind of financial stress would not pass a standard background check to keep their security clearance.
1: No, because they're their they're vulnerability. They'd, they'd, be, they'd be a target for...
0: But someone actively engaging in a criminal enterprise on the weekend, he could not keep that from the government. They would find out. Because he doesn't have an average security clearance. He gets no. into m on the regular, which means he does not have, he has a fairly high security clearance.
1: Yeah, he, he has enough wait for somebody to let him in. His retina, is, his retina scan is programmed into m so.
0: So, the likelihood of him being able to engage in prostitution on the side and to have that kind of financial stress and keep his security clearance and thus his job, it's ridiculous.
1: It's honestly the same thing as Tony having any job that NCIS doesn't know about. Because federal agents don't get to make money that they don't disclose. It's
0: anyone, um, anyone working from the, from the from the, for the state, any state, or the federal government must disclose every single penny they make. It's it's a uh, there's a financial disclosure circumstance that happens every single year.
1: And honestly, I worked in the private sector, and I still had to disclose if I earned money not the amounts or anything like that, but if I was doing any work for anybody else, I had to let my employer know because I had non-compete clauses and they had to be sure that I wasn't doing work for somebody who was a competitor of theirs in any market segment because that was in my employment contract. So I had to disclose who I was doing work for, where I made any other money, and I could lose my job or be forced to quit that other job if it was in a competing market segment. So it's it's just... it's.
0: But financial disclosure and security clearances are, are serious business when it comes to a situation like Tony Genozo would be in. Um, is it a, he's on a high-profile team in a federal agency in Washington. It isn't like he's he's in some podunk office in Denver or something. It was, it, Denver wouldn't be podunk, would it? Nebraska. I won't, get, I won't get phone calls. Not phone calls, but emails about that. I'm not being mean to Nebraska. It just amuses me. Anyways, um, so, honestly, the scrutiny of federal employees in the Washington, D.C. area would be twice as intense as it would be anywhere else. Yeah. Because Tony has the potential to be exposed to the President of the United States. So, we know uh, that from the first episode. Was that Yankee White?
1: Mm-hmm. Yankee White, yeah.
0: And the fact that that Gibbs' team was called to that scene Specifically, um, it was NCIS jurisdiction, but Gibbs was was specifically put on that case. Indicates that there were probably situations in the past and in the background where De Nozzo, um and Gibbs were involved with various aspects of Secret Service in the White House.
1: I do think that there actually was an episode where they were where they were actually in the presence of the president, but I. I could almost see it, but I just can't quite put it together in my head. But anyway, um, so when it comes to a character that you know about, well, you know their canon circumstances, right? You under- You got to make sure that these things line up when you're trying to figure out what their stressors are. Um, and other than health, now there are like a lot of, arcs I've read where Tony develops a health problem. You know, that that can happen to anybody. And that can rattle you, right? So like you got your bottom two tiers met. Maybe you're you could solve with your family. You're doing well at work. You got this esteem thing. You're working on your self actualization and you get a health problem. And that can really rattle anybody, right? Especially if you've never had a health problem before. And somebody like Tony, other than his knee injury, probably has never had a significant health problem. And so that can be so I that that if you want to like in I think that's why it winds up being a stressor that people insert for him into plot lines, is that he gets some kind of critical health issue or um, critical injury or he gets cancer or something. So I I can understand why they would pick health, because logically, it's not going to be the bottom tier logically people i think people do it but it doesn't make any sense logically it's not going to be the physiological thing it's going to be something if they want to put in a big stressor in terms of his his needs it's going to be something in the about safety it's going to be either personal security i actually don't personally see him putting up with an abusive spouse an abusive partner i think it's it, it doesn't jive with his character at all especially you know but in any case i people could do that um but honestly the most the most effective tiers to work on with Tony, if you want to work, flesh him out as a character, is that love and belonging tier. Um, um, yeah, okay. Um,
0: well, we know he has actually, we, we know he has lung damage because that's how um, Ducky decides that he was not the body in the car.
1: Right. So Tony definitely had lung damage. They don't explore it in canon in any way because um, realistically realistically tony would not have been capable of saving Gibbs life in requiem Gibbs and Maddie that
0: and if he had it would have probably killed him
1: yeah because um I read I read this thing about how that whole about the how that episode episode was filmed and that the divers because they had rescued they had a rescue diver they had like a whole team of stunt people and and rescue divers for each person so gibbs had somebody working with him on him and mark Harmon and the actress who played maddie and michael weatherly michael weatherly worked did that whole thing without a stunt double He had the whole thing. And then one of the things that the guy who was in charge of doing the scene said that they were all so astonished at the physical, the physicality he put into that. And that he was able to do all of that back and forth underwater and hold his breath for a really long time. He's a Um, badass. Right? (laughs) The Tony Ah. who got the plague would not have been able to do what Michael Weatherly was able to do. So, but realistically, so I think people explore. Uh, I, I think that's one of the reasons why it's a popular tag for Requiem is that Tony winds up with a problem, a lung problem, as a result of that, because it is a realistic outcome. And you know, and Tony and Tony and did that after running across that warehouse while shooting people, And hitting the them, Ziva. Right. Hitting them. He hit them. <laughs> and then he's d- underwater multiple times getting them out, Um, busting that windshield out. He breaks the steering column to get Gibbs out. And then he does mouth to mouth for two people. And then he's just a little winded. So <laughs> clearly they're portraying a character who's incredibly physically adept. In well, that. it's
0: obvious they wrote that script for Michael Weatherly and not actually for Tony D'Anozo.
1: Right. Right, exactly,
0: but I actually had no idea he did all the underwater stuff himself that's that that that's badass, dude, badass.
1: <clears throat> I didn't either. I was reading this I read this thing, in this article on it online about um and they had interviewed the the guy who put the was head of the stunt the the whole thing, and he said they had all been astonished at how Michael Wesley was able to handle all of that that he he did it all himself, and I think they shot the whole thing in a day.
0: So he did all that running thing, then the underwater stuff in the same day, mm-hmm. dude. <laughs> Ellie says it's obviously can proof that he'd already started working with the Stargate program and had been healed.
1: <laughs> also, right.
0: we also all agree that that was that that's hot. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we, last night I said that the, that the single hottest thing I can fuck I can encounter is a really competent man living his best life you know it's like just be confident as fuck that it's going to get me going faster than anything including a six-pack
1: but people write you know i mean i don't think i've ever read written i am not written i don't think i've ever read i haven't written it either but i don't think i've ever read anybody writing like you know just somebody having just an intense appreciation for tony for what tony accomplished That's like like I don't know like a paramedic or something just like dude that was fucking hot. I can't believe that you managed that. Did you break the steering column on that on that on that uh on that vehicle really? That's hot.
0: <laughs> Are you aware how hot that is? Cuz damn boy, damn. Um here, have the shot blanket.
1: <laughs> <laughs> here, have my number. I want to break your bed with you. Um, hmm. So it's just – it's just something to, to like, bear in mind that Tony, you know, it would have uh, – I do think of that lower two tiers, that, that health is the one that is the easiest to poke at if you wanted to – because it can be motivation. It speaks to motivation, right? When your needs aren't being met, you're highly motivated to get them met. That's part of the human condition. Um And sometimes highly motivated to get them met means putting up with crap. That's also part of the human condition. I'm sort of getting my love and belonging needs met with this dysfunctional group of people. So I'm going to put up with this. Because it's sort of meeting my needs. I would like to, I would like to, you know, ideally I would like to get my love and belonging needs met without destroying my self-esteem. But you can't have everything. (laughs) (laughs) I mean... People, don't, people don't, don't verbalize it that way, but that's basically what's happening, right? So a character who puts up with being treated like crap for the sake of belonging, that's what they're saying. is: I would like to get my needs met in a healthy and productive way, but you can't have everything. So my self-esteem is going to get sacrificed. Why? Because it's higher up the food chain, right? It's higher up the pyramid. <gasps> Margaret. Never getting out of the corner. No, Tony, Tony's not banging his brother. Just go get in the corner.
0: (laughs) This is not supernatural. That's right. (laughs) It's
1: not supernatural,
0: Tony. You cannot have sex with your brother. (laughs) And neither can you, Dean? for fuck's sake. (sighs) You should. You should. You should definitely (laughs) apologize for your vandom. Although I am not going to apologize for Hannibal. I refuse.
1: He's going to have to suck it up and apologize for himself one of these days. But until that day happens, we're just going to lean into it.
0: Today is not that day. <laughs> Today is
1: not that day. <laughs> Tomorrow's not looking good either. Um, <laughs> so when you're when you're working on your character, whatever character it is, if it's a canon character, if it's an original character, and you're working on... What is driving this character? What what can poke at their and it's not just a matter of what they actively need, right? Like what they need now, but it's also a matter of what could what could prod at at their soft spots, right? What can feed into their internal conflict, right? What can what can contribute to their motivation? Like we talked about, somebody who had a care, you know, if you had deprivation issues with food growing up, you might be very territorial about food. You might be likely to stab somebody with a fork if they tried to take your food off your plate. I mean, you might hoard food. I mean, there could be a lot of like little things, right? So if somebody has had a deprivation issue, they don't have it now, but it can feed into what motivates them, right? So it's situation- also the truth
0: for people who have food allergies. If um, that can lead to a, a special kind of food security um, issue, uh, insecurity issue that can cause um, um, obsessive compulsive disorder, um, uh, nervous tics. Uh, I have a cousin who's allergic to something very popular. And, um, so, and sometimes uh, if she's not in control of her food, she can get bent really quickly. Say, I mean, I don't want to say her allergy, but say specifically say you're allergic to milk. It is very hard to eat in a lot of public places without consuming dairy. Um, and so going out to eat with her, uh it's best for her psychologically if she picks the restaurant. Because she already has investigated the menu. She's probably already called them more than once in <laughs> regards to what's in their dishes. She may or may not have spoken to the people who cook the food more than once. And this is about her safety. Um, and, and it's because when she was very young, she had an allergic reaction that put her in the hospital. Um, she went into anaphylactic shock. Um, she had um, seizures and had a mild cardiac event um, in the midst of all of it. And she had a secondary reaction in the emergency room. She spent two weeks in the hospital. So, and because this happened to her when she was very young, she was nine or ten years old, it has psychologically shaped her. So, uh, we look at a character like McKay, who has a severe allergy to um, citrus that is often, in canon, treated like a joke. Which offends the fuck out of me cuz i have food allergies and the idea that someone thinks it would be funny to feed me my food allergy makes me want to stab them just just stab 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 <laughs> like i um i went to um which was a seafood restaurant recently and um Um, you know, one of the first things I always do when I sit down um with a um with in in a new place or just any place, I'll I'll check the menu and see if they serve scallops. And of course this is a seafood place. So of course they're gonna serve scallops, right? So I tell the waiter that I'm allergic to scallops and I order my food. Well, about ten minutes after I ordered, the, the 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 cook, the chef of the of the place comes to my table and asks for specifics regarding my food allergy. Um and wanted to assure me that there would be no cross-contamination and that he would cook my food personally and that he would make sure all the utensils and all of the um, uh, hardware used in the construction of my food was would not be uh, a, a danger to me. And he wanted to let me know that I could relax and enjoy my food because it would be utterly safe for me. And I was like, dude, <laughs> that's, that, that's almost romantic. Thank you. <laughs> Because it's like it
1: you know. Some restaurants take that very seriously. So there's a chain restaurant in Canada that does that that they you know, they ask on the menu, please let the waitress know if you have any food allergies. And, you know, when you tell her, the manager comes around to talk to you and you know, get the get the low down and explain how they handle things in the kitchen and, and if there's anything that they can't avoid. Um Yeah, because my family we've everybody has some sort of food allergy, but it's like almost nobody has a food allergy in common. Wow. So it's like, you know, whatever. Um, Mine are pretty obscure. Well, one of them is pretty obscure. It's like you wouldn't find it in a restaurant anyway. And the other one is mint, which, you know, but for me, it's just like pick that out, you know, but it's not like my, my mint allergy. If I get it, if I eat it, it's not going to kill me. But like my mom and my sister's food allergies are more anaphylaxis type levels. So, and they are commonly found in restaurants. So,
0: I think that I'm honestly lucky to have a seafood allergy because people, uh, a lot of them, I think people like say they have allergies and they'll be like, sure you do. And they'll knock it off. But seafood allergies are so prevalent and so often serious in the, like, is it isn't just a, you know, people go into anaphylactic shock if they're exposed to shrimp, if they have a shrimp allergy. So um, having a seafood allergy, people take take it very seriously. Whereas sometimes you can tell somebody you can't eat gluten and they'll just roll their eyes at you.
1: Yeah, and you're like, do you understand what celiac disease is? No? Shut up. Go away.
0: I want your manager. <laughs> my my name's Karen tonight. <laughs> but, um... Even like in Red Lobster, I went into Red Lobster about a year ago and, um... uh, The, the waiter asked if we had any food allergies at the table and I said, I'm allergic to scallops. Um... And he said that there was anything in the menu that has scallops in it can be made without it. Just let me know if you want it. i was like, okay. Um, the manager came around um, before our food was served to let me know that um, that the area where my food had been cooked had been cleaned before everything got started, and that um, scallops had not were, were not actually out of the prep area were out of the prep area during my food's construction. And also, um, my mother's food was cooked without any exposure to scallops. Just, they, they, made, they made perfectly sure, so there would be nothing coming to our table that had scallops on it. And that was at a Red Lobster. You know, a very popular see- chain. And so, but
1: I think big, a, big, a lot of restaurants are recognizing, probably, honestly, some of this change has been brought about by lawsuits, where somebody being cavalier about a food allergy got somebody killed. Yeah. And when it comes to things like food allergies, some, for some people, the consequence of, it, of somebody fucking up is death. And if you're in that boat, if you're in that group, you're going to be hypervigilant about that thing. And so somebody like Rodney, who, if he has a severe allergy to citrus, it is going to feed, even if there's no citrus around him, he's going to always be very careful about what he eats. And he's always going to ask, you know, is this, honestly, he probably wouldn't take the risk of ever eating off world. He probably would always have to eat MREs or bars or whatever he brought with him because how do they know what alien citrus looks and smells like, right? You don't know what might be analogous to citrus in another galaxy. So one of them
0: one of the more interesting stories I read in Stargate ones is that Rodney did have a uh, reaction off world and they used the EpiPen and they got him back through the gate and he had a secondary reaction in the infirmary and ended up spending several days there and was very, very ill. And that was when they realized just how serious his allergy was that it wasn't just a, um, a mild rash or hives. It was, you know, anaphylactic shock, and it would kill him. And John went to Radic and said, "Can can you build me something that so we can scan food in when when we're off world?" And Radic did. He used an ancient device to create a um, a analyzer that they could put food in it and analyze the food for his allergies. It was a really interesting fic.
1: Yeah. Huh.
0: I don't remember what it was. I don't remember. That's all I remember about it specifically. Um, Sometimes when you read a whole bunch of different fics, they kind of blend together. And that's the case with that one.
1: Um. But sometimes there are people who, who don't struggle with like an allergy or anything like that. it can be, they can be very cavalier with other people's lives. Because they don't personally get it, it doesn't personally affect them. But it's just something when you're working on what's your characterization. um, It's something to bear in mind with somebody like Rodney. Is do they? You know, if he's got this issue, so anything that anything that they struggled with, you know, um, that's in that that tier of like threat to self, it could be a pain point that you have to to factor in, in terms of their motivations and conflict and obstacles for them to overcome in a story, you know, it could be an obstacle for Rodney in any story is how is he going to eat? And for somebody like, with, with that kind of allergy he's got, it could be an anxiety point for him on every mission they go on. Did he pack enough food? Does he have bars with him? Because he would be cautious about eating off world if he couldn't like verify that there was no citrus because you know, it'd be the same thing if he has like a berry allergy or something where you just, you don't know, is this thing going to kill me? Or am I going to be fine? And so it, it plays into like the psychological makeup of the character because they have to factor in anxiety changes a person, people who are, when you're anxious about something, you do, you try to do something to try to, to settle that feeling down, you know, whether it's, you know, checking, you know, the hypervigilance is a thing, whether it's constantly checking on the thing that is stressing you out, or it's like, you know, double checking to make sure you've got protein bars and irritating your team because you're double checking to make sure that you've got a protein bar so that, you know, especially if you've got hypoglycemia, I mean, that's like the worst case scenario, right? Food allergies and hypoglycemia. Because... (laughs) <laughs> that means you got to have you've got to have a food source with you all the time that you can count on not having citrus in it and citrus is so ubiquitous that it's a problem. So it would create a, a a constant stress for him. Especially if the people around him don't respect the problem.
0: You can transfer this um pathology uh to various other issues beyond um food security if you have a um character who has been um Physically abused in the past, who has been sexually assaulted, uh, that um, that breach in their physical security in their past um, will resonate with them throughout their life. And so, if you have a female character, she might be not inclined to be alone with a man she doesn't know, or even men that she does know. She might not be, you know, she would probably be nervous could be nervous, would be nervous, to be alone in a room with a group of men. Um, if you have a character who was physically abused by a parent, they might be put off by authority figures, uh, whether they respond in a very negative way or whether they respond in um, with a timid submission. Uh, so you need to figure out your your character's past and their present and what they want for their future, and how their wants shape their needs, and how their needs shape their wants. Um, so, if you look at a character like Harry Potter, who grew up in a neglectful, at the very least, a neglectful circumstance, in a physically abusive one as well, because we know Vernon hit him, there's every reason to believe. And look, if you look at the first adult. If you strip away all that nonsense about the blood wards. Because I don't believe that that actually. That doesn't make any fucking sense. At all. That the wards on that house would somehow protect Harry Potter when he's not there. But strip it away. Strip all that out. And look at what happens to the first adult. To put their hands on Harry Potter. In the magical world. With with violent intent. And that's Quirrell. When it happens, it's my head canon that Harry's magic, which had been kind of starving since he was in the magical world for so long and had been underfed. Um, that he that his Aunt Petunia was basically starving his magic. And but he'd had a he'd had a whole year of really, really filling meals, right? His magic was robust, he was getting back on track physically and Quirrell attacked him. And I, it's my headcanon that Harry Potter's magic burned um, Quirrell out. That It lashed out at him in response to this adult putting his hands on him because he's had that experience before. And at that point in his life, he had the ability to, um, his magic was robust enough to protect him for the first time in a very long time. Probably since he was hit by the killing curse.
1: So more accidental magic than mother's protection?
0: I would say so, yes. Yeah. It's also in my headcanon that if Vernon had ever gone full force at Harry Potter after he got a wand, that Harry's magic would have lashed out and killed him. Mm-hmm.
1: And maybe even as a kid, honestly. Well, I, mean, I you know
0: I think that him being underfed was Petunia's way of controlling his magic. Yeah, or maybe even damaging his magic permanently. Could be. I think there's a reason why um, at Hogwarts, even um, even their regular meals are basically feasts.
1: Because they need a lot more calories.
0: Yep. And, while they, and why they're encouraged to eat a whole lot of candy and sugar. And why that cart on Hogwarts Express is full of sugar. Because I imagine small children burn through it faster than adults. Especially when they're learning magic and then um, they have their wands for the first time.
1: Now, to be fair, I, I mean, I agree with you. But to be fair, this is us rationalizing the sheer amount of sugar these kids eat.
0: <laughs> right.
1: When, it, when in reality it was written just to appeal to kids. Right. Yeah.
0: But if you're, but if I'm going to include it in my work, I have to make it make sense to me.
1: Right. Which is a lot of what we do is we, we make, we make some of the weird decisions that authors make or show creators or whatever. We, we make their weird decisions make sense. Right. People go, Oh, that makes sense. Cause obviously it never did before. Um, so but yeah. Well, it doesn't matter how fast their metabolism is; you, you don't have, the solution to a fast metabolism is not a mountain full of candy, because then you have a fast metabolism and diabetes, because you're still going to burn your pancreas out. But in any case, um, that's a complete tangent.
0: Um, their body has to be using their magic. I mean, their sugar co- and intake yeah. in a different way. I mean, it's just nothing else makes sense.
1: Otherwise, they are setting them unless they've got a cure for, you know, pancreatic, pancreatic fatigue. <laughs> so, they have talked about the hierarchy. We've talked about the difference between wants and needs. So, let's. Do you want to work on, like, give an ex- like work on an idea of how to use wants and needs to help build a character to 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 take them down the desired path? Because conceivably. You have when you're when you're crafting an idea for a story. You have a path you want your character to go on. You have this journey you want them to take, and you want to do a, a better job than potentially the canon writers of getting your character on that journey. So how do you how do you play with their wants and needs to to help feed into their GMC for the character to take your story on the path that you want it on? Because it is have- a
0: You also got to figure out that sometimes your character will have wants that can't be met. And they should have wants that can't be met. It would be unrealistic if they didn't.
1: Otherwise, they're a self-indulged little twat that nobody wants to read about. Right? (laughs) Draco Malfoy, anybody?
0: Scott?
1: Just just kidding. kidding. (laughs) Definitely Scott.
0: Because in reality... Allison should have never given Scott McCall the time of day. No, especially after she found out her history and embraced that whole hunting shit, and yet she still wanted to sit on Scott's stick. That makes no sense whatsoever. <laughs> None. And then you look at, okay, let's look at a character like Ron Weasley, who has all of these wants. We see them front and center when he looks into that mirror during his first year. He wants to be head boy. He wants to be captain of the Quidditch team. And yet, does he even try out for Quidditch before his fifth year? Sixth
1: uh, year? Six year. Six, six, six year. year.
0: So the year that Harry Potter becomes the captain of the Quidditch team, Ron Weasley tries out. Mm-hmm. But
1: when you look at the hierarchy, right, what Ron is wanting is status, recognition, um, and respect, right? He wants those are the things he doesn't feel like he has. But he doesn't want to work for them. He wants them given to him.
0: Yeah, because he, the head boy is academically the best male student in the school. Ron Weasley never once, mm-hmm. ever, attempted to be that academic ideal, how the hell could he possibly be the head boy when he couldn't barely I mean, he could barely do his homework? Right. Now Ron's wants were actually shaped by the accomplishments of his brother brothers. Charlie, Percy, Bill. Charlie was the Quidditch star. Bill was head boy. Percy was was Percy head boy. Um I know he was a prefect but I don't remember if he was a boy. They're saying yes in the chat room. Um So those accolades elevated those those children in um in his mother's eyes. They were they were doing exactly what she wanted them to do. And so Ron looks at these and says, "Okay, well I have to do that too to make my mom happy. So that I'll be as good as the rest of them." So really, his wants are built on... There's some jealousy there, of course. But there's also something else there. There's um, there's a deeper pathology there. Uh, there's inad- something... um, um, he's inadequate. Mm-hmm.
1: There's something he didn't get or that he didn't feel like he got. or I've read some stories that sort of put it out there without being overt. But this is the way I interpreted it. that His inadequacy was stemmed around the fact that he was between the girl that his mother really wanted and the twins who took all of his mother's time.
0: It makes sense.
1: So so he had the high achieving older brothers, Charlie, Bill, Percy. He had the attention hogging twins who I don't think wanted the attention, but what they did got them all the attention. And then, and then the sister came along, the girl that Molly, the, the rest of Molly's attention went to the girl. And Ron had no place. So I think that actually is a reasonable explanation for why he is feels so inadequate. And, and how that drives him. And why that drives him.
0: And why from the very beginning, even though all Harry wanted was a friend. Ron saw him as both. Well, first I think as the boy who lived. Um, Second, as uh, competition. And third, maybe a friend. Maybe. Because his friendship is so shallow and fickle. Mm -hmm.
1: Well, if he saw him as, you know, I could have something that none of the others have. This is the most famous person in the wizarding world. He could be my friend. And especially if if, if, let's say Ron had any kind of resentment towards Jenny. um, If he knew or he suspected that you know, people that they intended, the family intended Ginny to be married to Harry. He could be like, "No, no, no, I'm going to get this first, not marry him." But he's going to be in mine some before. stories. He does. <laughs> yeah, he's going to be mine before he's hers. She's going to be my friend first. He's going to take care of me first. I'm going to get money from him first, right? So, but you know, that's ugly. It is. But what if? I mean, he's eleven, right? I mean, he's, right. One of the things about being eleven is, you know, your your ability to emotional re- regulation not that great, and kind of a little bit going after those things that if he feels like he's got a deficiency, he's going to be really dysfunctional about how he goes about it. Um. And with when it when it came to. I think his inadequacy issues about his brothers, because even if, even, even the twins were really gifted, even if they did weren't ambitious, I think they were ambitious in a different way. That wasn't really obvious, but they were obviously smart and gifted. Obviously. And then Ron is just average, right? He's kind of average in a, in a family full of, you know, high achievers. And, you know, if he maybe he knows on some level that he's not going to be super special on his own, so he can have the most famous friend, though. And so he's using Harry, he sees Harry as a path to being, but I think it would also foster resentment, too, because he sees Harry as being his path to being as special as his brothers or more special than his brothers, but then he would eventually get resentful because he didn't have it on his own. He had to have Harry. He would resent Harry. And you see
0: that manifesting repeatedly. During the series. Um, During fourth year. um, During seventh year. When he he abandons them both. During the war. um, Where Ron. Ron's wants. And needs. Are more important than anybody else's. Mm -hmm. But more his wants. Because his wants are really what drive him. Ron doesn't have any basic needs that aren't being met. His family's poor, but they're not that poor. You're, you're never given the indication that food security was a problem. He has clothes on his back, even if they're not new. They did have the money to get books, even if they were used. So it isn't like he's, he's in, he grew up poor, but he's not in poverty. They have a robust garden. Um, Full of gnomes the gnomes remain one of the weirdest parts for me in the in the whole thing the throwing the gnomes
1: mm-hmm. yeah <laughs> good to in the garden yeah um
0: and um so Ron's driven not by needs like basic needs because those are being met He's obviously, even though he's the youngest boy, he's a 6 of 7, he is not somebody who's been neglected outright. Um, He's not been somebody who was physically or emotionally abused by his family. He has grown up with a very close sibling, Jenny. So he had companionship. So when you look at Ron, he is moted mostly... He, he's motivated mostly by his really selfish desires
1: which i think when you see people who have really dysfunctional desires like that or dysfunctional expression of their desires that it is rooted in in something in the my guess would be around the self esteem thing which is a need to have you have to need self esteem is a need but if somebody fundamentally feels inadequate it can so I, you could actually, I think, tie a lot of Ron's wants that he goes after in such a dysfunctional way to that feeling of inadequacy, which then comes back to needs. But you kind of got to track it back to something, right? Um, it's the same thing with a person who feels ashamed of having been poor. And so they project an image of wealth that they, they don't have. They spend money they don't have. That doesn't, that's not, a, that's not, a, that's not a, a base need they weren't getting met. It's related to self-esteem and um man and that's and i would say that of all the things that are even listed on that pyramid self esteem is one of the ones that is really tricky to when it comes to characters because if somebody's self esteem gets out of whack they feel inadequate about something or ashamed about something if that that really kind of deep neurotic thing that kind of festers inside them can manifest in a lot of really different and really disparate ways that may not be obvious that they're tied back to someone's self-esteem and how they feel about themselves um because i just gave two different examples of characters who have big self-esteem had a big self-esteem problem but manifesting completely differently because i do think ron fundamentally had i mean he had like he had, he had ego as big as draco malfoy but that does not necessarily have anything to do with self-esteem and i do think that he felt inadequate. I think he felt less than his brothers. I think not only that I don't think that he he I don't think he felt even capable of achieving a fraction of what they achieved. He also didn't try very hard for it. So I mean, who knows what he could have achieved if he had tried harder? But
0: that whole thing of not trying speaks to being spoiled. Yeah, and maybe it's because he did get three basic, you know, two academic years, him and his sister got two basic academic years of complete attention from their mom. Because the twins went, and the twins were third years when he started his first year. So, the twins' first and second year, it would have just been Molly, Ron, and Jenny at home. And so Molly would have focused all of her attention on the two of them.
1: And that could have finally satisfied a need he had for his mother's attention. For her her undivided attention. Right, for good or bad. And then he is without it, and he's back in the shadow. He goes to school, and he's back. There's the specter of the shadow of the twins. His brother's academic records. Percy's status in school. And then so he latches on to Harry to make up for his perceived deficiencies in himself and then he's overshadowed by harry all the time which is just manif- it's just making it worse and worse and worse so he's going after all this stuff that our yes wants but i do think it does tie back that neurotic stuff feeds back to something right and i think it for him it's like um, mother's attention, self-esteem. There's something there too, you know. Yeah, and definitely, he definitely reacted negatively to Hermione. But um, and
0: the, the worst part is, is that a lot of the things that he sees Harry getting appear on the outside to Ron to be effortless. Mm-hmm. So Harry is doing as little as Ron is a lot of the time, and still getting more famous, um, more attention. Now there's there's a really cracky, terrible story. Not terrible in that it's badly written. It's actually very well written. But um, it's called The Champion's Champion. It's a crack story about how Hermione helps Harry get out of the tournament by breaking his arm and, and refusing um, magical treatment. And so he has to name a champion. And he names Ron. Because Ron always wanted it, right? Well, the first so Moody, fake Moody, the golden egg fake Moody takes Ron aside and asks him if he has a plan. And Ron says, no. I don't need a plan. And Moody's like, well, you need a plan. And he said, because it always works out.
1: It always works out.
0: And it's it's like it's perfect because it highlights exactly the problem with Ron's character. It doesn't always work out, but he manages to, in the first two years, be knocked unconscious before the the confrontation with Voldemort in the shape in the at the end of the maze, right? Or at the end of the three tasks. And then in two, he's on the wrong side of the door. Um, For the whole Basilisk fight. So from his point of view. It all does just work
1: out. It just works out. I, I don't know how. But it does. It's because other somebody else worked for it. And, 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 and in
0: his mind. He has had 100% participation. In both of those events.
1: It's like. Ron the reason why it always works out. Is because Hermione studies.
0: <laughs> we would be screwed. Otherwise. Screwed.
1: Her good study habits have been your have been to your to your gain in the past. You don't have that now, so you need a plan.
0: Well, the the fic is very very cracky, but that is a really it's, it's an interesting um, take on Ron, who never had, who honestly never. You no, know, the only time. That He really, 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 really comes face to face with Riddle. The entire series is with the locket. When Harry opens the locket and Riddle says, I've seen into you. And he tries to, and I think Ron comes precariously close to giving into it and killing Harry in response to the locket's taunting, right? Mm -hmm. And that's the only time he ever really interacts personally with Riddle. It's just the Horcrux in the in the locket. I'll move that. Thanks. Um, and so it's like, yeah, Draco got a raw deal in that fic. A <laughs> uh, <laughs> real think, raw deal.
1: I mean, honestly, the funny thing is, I was thinking about. In a lot of ways, probably, um, Draco and Ron have very similar issues in terms of feeling inadequate and self-esteem issues. I do think that there's some self-esteem. He, I think Draco wants to please his father, but feels inadequate to do so. But one of the differences, I think, in the way we perceive the two characters and the reason why we, um, more often than not, people least in stories I've read, Uh, people either keep Draco as he was in canon or improve, uh, but Ron, there's not a whole lot of attempt to usually, for for most writers, to redeem him in any meaningful way. And I think the reason is because Ron, our perception, is using Harry. Um, And that feels really detestable. So, you know, it's not about Harry. And, And the betrayal. Between the betrayal and, I mean... Harry and Draco were always adversaries, right? So it's it's easier for us to take an adversary and do the friends to lovers thing or whatever. Um, And to to, to redeem a character like Draco, who is not constantly using Harry for his own ends, right? Who is not constantly, you know, latching onto him for his celebrity. Who is not constantly, um, you know basking in reflected fame and all that kind of stuff so it, it just feels different the way that ron uses harry and it makes him really unappealing as a character um so if you're going to do something with somebody like ron as a character you have to really work on his motivations and motivations come down to wants and needs and how do you solve the the, the inherent issues with him and that um i think thought so i was reading the chat room um i think Part of the reason my Harry didn't have a breakdown about the stuff that happened at Hogwarts is because it was better than what he was dealing with at home. It seems actually really straightforward to me that um, if, if you're used to dealing with a really shitty set of circumstances,
0: your body gonna, gets used to it.
1: Yeah, you're. And, and the the thing that's better is like, there's a madman trying to kill me here, but he usually doesn't try to. He doesn't usually catch up with me till the end of the year. So, so I'm good till I, May at least. I, I, got, I got like nine good months to relax into this. You know, I'm just going to lean into it and wait till wait till May or June. Um, I'm, I'm not getting a buzzing.
0: Yeah, because Riddle was obviously the, the most dedicated to um, Harry's education. Um, Except for Hermione. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that. You just have to acknowledge um, in fanfics, even when you redeem Ron, and he does need redemption. He does need it. Is that you need to acknowledge that he's not ever been a good friend to Harry.
1: And so I certainly would advocate that when you're doing your work, your work for your story to work on GMC, that you look at the GMC of your main characters and your side characters. It's one of the things that we don't see... You know, we don't. Sometimes we don't always see from people is they don't do the work with their side characters. Their side characters are static. They don't, you know, they, they're plot devices. Um, you know, you could you could do better. You don't have to, but you could. We say the same thing in. Uh, tv shows movies you know it's character it's it's often the character that is on screen the one that's the primary focus is the one that is progressing and developing and then in the next in the next movie if they're not the central character this was actually a big problem in the mcu is like in the iron man movies we would see you know big major things happening with like tony stark and then we get into the avengers movie where he's part of an ensemble and his character it's like all that character growth is just kind of he goes back to static and that's really that's a real terrible failure of characterization Um, but it also is treating your characters like plot devices where you have to keep them static in order to make your plot happen and you know whatever i have strong opinions about that
0: so when you're working, this is actually a good point to bring up, because when you're working with a group of people to write in a, um, say, for instance, like when we did in Feeding Frenzy, where we have a character um, over a series of months, I, I think it's actually almost, what, 18 months, almost two years?
1: Uh, well, the, the, the bulk of the story takes place over about three or four months, but then mm-hmm. the, the end story jumps forward like 18 months. So the last part jumps, just a big time jump.
0: Yeah, I did the time jump. I should remember that. (laughs) So we needed Tony to grow and change throughout the series as he experienced various um, situations that we put him through. Robot cats included. So it was like we needed to, as a group, keep his characterization moving forward and not allow him to um, de-evolve.
1: Right, because when you get a character who's, who's moving on, who is um, coming into his own, who's finding his feet, who's, you know, when when he's, when he's, when he's going through that, to have him go back to being, you know, you can't have him step back to be massively insecure, you know, when you're 15 relays in, he can't suddenly have a fit of, oh, I, you know. I'm not, I'm not any good at this stuff. Nobody's going to want to hire me. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's, a, it's a, you know, it's de-evolving. De- so, you have to kind of watch that kind of thing, is to kind of keep the character progressing. And yes, people sometimes do backslide, you know, and that's one. but that's what you have to do it deliberately, and you need to let the audience see it, right? Like, what is it that triggered this insecurity for this character that that is causing a problem for them because that happens in real life, right? Like somebody who is, who has dealt with an issue, who is very functional, who can, you wouldn't even know they had a problem, right? Something happens on a, a, at a crime scene or something. And all of a sudden they, you know, it's the wrong victim, right? Or the wrong crime or something that just really pushes a button. And all of a sudden they're having an issue. That's realistic, good character work, but the audience needs to be able to connect those dots, you can't just have a character who's very confident suddenly not be confident without any explanation for why.
0: Right. Very, very important. So when I moved into the anchor, I was like I had to read the whole series. The anchor. Without the anchor?
1: Oh, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I thought I thought you were talking about a fit called the anchor. I was like, what is the anchor? What is she talking about? Yeah, I
0: anchored you, the relay. You yeah, anchored
1: okay. the relay, yeah, yeah, sorry.
0: Okay, so when I moved into the anchor round, um, I needed to uh, account for all the events that Tony had gone through and how he had matured and how he had grown and make a decision about where he would land, but also who who he would land with um, and what kind of relationship would serve him best. And, well, yeah, that too. Um, there was some there's on.
1: There's definitely some, some on.
0: And some in, actually.
1: <laughs> that too. On and in. In, in <laughs> on, all around.
0: But it was actually, I mean, it was a really uh, interesting decision to make. Because uh, I have my my druthers when it comes to pairings for Tony. Um, and so I honestly got romanced.
1: You did. You did get romanced, yes. And I got I romanced
0: by another Relay.
1: I didn't. I didn't see it coming. Well, I I definitely didn't see it coming. Um, it, was, but, it was interesting,
0: but but when you look at that relay, it's like,
1: oh yeah,
0: yeah, damn girl, look what you did. And so I think that when um, the goal of um, the feeding frenzy um, is to move Tony through all these circumstances and to see how big his world could be. And to have him settle in a place where he's comfortable and happy, where his needs are being met, where um, his wants are being addressed, if not, not outright met, uh, and that he's in a really happy place. Uh, so that kind of character building, especially when you're trying to merge all these different writing um, um, methods and um, styles together, can be daunting. But I think we did a great job. i do
1: too in that case because like when kira was was evaluating how she because when she read them all and it it, from a character wants and needs perspective when she's sitting there evaluating because i remember you and i talked about it we actually i think we even talked on the we got on you know on live on discord to talk about Mm -hmm. it is what does tony you know he, he still fundamentally struggled suffered with a massive betrayal Right, so how does that was the impetus for this getting kicked off was a, basically a massive betrayal by his entire chain of command fucked him over, right? So that ha, that has to play into into what he's going to do. So he's gotten his basically his ego has been massively stroked by like everybody's tried to hire him through this whole thing, but it doesn't change the fact that that this is he's going from having his world rocked. Even though there's all the stuff that makes him feel good about it, that's still got to be a factor. Is how does he feel about the fact that you? Is he going to be? How how is he going to be with strangers? Is he going to be willing to step out on a limb with a group that he doesn't actually know that well? Um, Is he going to be able willing? You know, and so she. You, know, you, she—it's uh, really weird to talk to you, but about you at the same time. <laughs> um, was really thinking about, well, what would he do, right? And um, what what would it look like? What what would he need? What what beyond a satisfying what, satisfying place to work? Because all of the so many of the relays presented satisfying job opportunity, right? But at the end of the day, is what is going to make him feel like he can take the next step forward. Which of these opportunities is going to be the thing that meets that need, the need that, the thing that has been, where the trust has been broken? What is going to make him feel like he can take that step safely? And, and that's how, you know, I I got. got where you got, but then there was this other factor because there were a lot of of romantic prospects throughout the, th- thrown out yes. there that were that were yes. good, that, were, that good. were
0: banging, that were banging.
1: There were a lot of because, and so that became two factors. So um, I have to admit, I would have probably gone into it thinking that the romance and the and the um, the job were coupled, but Kira didn't take that approach. <laughs> it's like it's two separate things. I, that's because, and I'll I'll tell you why. And I think that when you read it. That
0: it will make a lot of sense to you is that one of the things that quadrupled the betrayal that he suffered at NCIS is that all of his eggs were in one basket. That late, the, this series is actually in beta. Um When Julie gets finished baiting, we will all get our parts. We put them back together, and then and then it will be on wild uh, on the Wild Hair Project. And it's over hundred k, so we need to give her a minute. Yeah. <laughs> And there are how many of us participating?
1: Uh, 13 authors, 25 parts. So. I think. Give it a hot minute. It is. It, yeah. um,
0: uh, is that, I was like, I don't see how he would allow that circumstance to happen again.
1: Right. Yeah,
0: true. Um, where he would invest himself both personally and professionally in the same circumstance. And so I wanted to create a situation where he could have this safety net outside of his job that was solid as a rock, that was open to intimacy, that um, that really saw Tony for who he was and not who they wanted him to be and accepted him for that. And in the end, there was only one character in the feeding frenzy that fit that job. That fit that moment for him. And that
1: was that was where she got romance. And I I and the thing is, after I read it, when I read it, I I was I had the same moment. I went, I wrote Karen. I went, Are you seeing this pairing? <laughs> <laughs> she said, Yeah, I, I ship it. I ship the fuck out of it right now. I
0: ship it. I ship it. But then you know, even though I shipped it, if um when I was addressing Tony's wants and needs and what he would need in his private life, if that hadn't slotted in so perfectly, it wouldn't have been my choice.
1: Right. But it did. It worked. It worked. So, but it was an evaluation of, you know, what has happened because in a, in a situation where your character has been betrayed, right. Depending upon the nature of the betrayal that is going to, when they make their next step, when you're looking at their goals or motivations and and conflict and how that feeds into what they're going to do, it, they're going to want to, to, and they're going to have a fundamental need to, to not feel vulnerable in that way that they've just been hurt. So if they've been betrayed by at work, they're going to need to feel like they can trust the people they work with. Otherwise, they're going to be worried, worried, worried. Um
0: constantly. And that kind of and that kind of anxiety can make you sick. Like literally ill.
1: So you have to figure out, you have to take that into into account if you put in a character who suffered from a partner betrayal right um, you have to you have to factor in when, when you're looking at their next romantic prospect you know you have to factor in the fact that they just came out of they, their last relationship ended in partner betrayal it's gonna be a big deal you know and it can't just be nothing it can't be you can't not react to it you can't have it not be there because betrayal is very, Having somebody violate your trust and lie to you about, especially somebody, especially somebody who is close to you, or that's something that is somehow foundational to your life, and have that rocked—it's so rude. It has an, eff- it is rude, but it has an effect. And uh, so often I see it written like it has no effect. It's like
0: it only would not affect your character if they literally did not give a fuck, if they did not care about their partner, if they did not. If they were so used to portrayal. That it didn't even faze them. And. Writing that kind of character. Y'all. Y- do you really want to write that kind of character? Is that what you really want? I mean. Because it's like.
1: It's hard. I'm trying to get there's any angles about this. We haven't really talked to Um, When you work up. This one of the reasons why character profiles are really important is that you understand and we've talked about before there are there are character profiles that um 100 pages do you need that no not in my opinion um some some people will have like a a a one page hot sheet kind of thing basic biographical details but beyond the basic biographical details you have to know what motivates your character you know what drives them where where do they come from what what kinds of things were they deprived of you know what what are their what are their what are their soft points you know where, where are their where, what would be their soft target if somebody was going after them where could somebody who you know was it was very astute, um, be able to poke at them and get a get a reaction. You need to understand what those things are, and it can be it doesn't have to be elaborate, but you just need to have an understanding of it. And then you have to write to it, because if you if you say that a character is vulnerable about this area, but then you have them not reacting to that stressor in your story, it's disingenuous, right? You're just ignoring your own character bio. So. You know, in this, and having a character bio has, in my opinion, has absolutely nothing to do with plotter versus pantser. Nothing. I know plotters who don't put together a character bio and pantsers who do. So maybe a plotter is more likely to do it. I can't really speak to that side of it because I haven't done like a survey or anything of plotter versus pantser and character work. But (laughs) it doesn't have anything to do with. One of, with plotting versus pantsing but if you sit down and you know that you're going to write a story and your main character is going to be John Shepard and your, uh, your other main character is going to be Rodney McKay even if you don't know the story you're going to write write up a character bio and this, here's what will help you even if you're a pantser is you, you've got your basic bio, you understand the character and you get to writing and the story is not intersecting well with the bio right? change the bio You go, okay, this is a story I want to write, but realistically, I recognize that a John with this in his past would not react this way. If you haven't done anything that contradicts it, go ahead and change your bio and then just be very attentive to it, to staying. And you'll learn, you know, how to make your bio. If you start practicing, you'll get it right more often than not ahead of time. But when you're working from nothing, you just contradict yourself all over the place.
0: Yeah, because in one chapter he has blue eyes and in the next he has green. Yeah. I've seen that. I've seen that repeatedly. I mean, and that's the kind of detail that your reader's going to pick up and think, oh,
1: God, you sloppy bitch. Why, are his, <laughs> why do his eyes keep changing colors? I don't understand this. Is he magical?
0: He started, this isn't paranormal. Why is he doing this? Is he a vampire? Nope, not a vampire.
1: <laughs> or, you know, he talks about in one chapter his mother dying when he was young and in the next chapter his mother's still alive. Because a character, honestly, a character who lost their mother young is going to react differently to some things than a character who has a, their parents still living. It's that's just human nature?
0: So you need to know. You need to know. You can't.
1: You can't just. If I, I just, I, I have a hard time with just. Well, I'll make it up as I go.
0: That's a no for me, dog. Yeah,
1: I mean, I I I mean, honestly, I sat down to write some short stories before with canon characters where I don't do a lot of work if it's like five thousand words. I'm not gonna sit down and write up a full on character bio. But these are usually stories that have that are canon characters I've worked with before, and so I'm leveraging character bio that I've done before. I'm not doing anything like groundbreaking. But I wouldn't even write a five K short of original work with a new character that I hadn't written up something about.
0: Because you, cause you need to know. I mean, I need to know. Maybe you don't need to know. Maybe you want to be surprised. But then don't be surprised in your rough draft if your character has three different color eyes.
1: Or your character's not reacting right. Or your character feels flat. Or, you know, because honestly, all those little things that you know about a character ahead of time, even if you're pantsing your plot, all those little things you know about ahead of time give them depth in your own head. And so you're able to write them more effectively. Because it's always the little things, you know. Because if you haven't figured out the character, they're just going to come across two dimensional. That only happens when I'm running the Discord app because I'm so busy in my browser usually looking stuff up. If anybody has any questions, drop them in the Ask a Question for the podcast. If somebody asked a question, um, somebody asked a question earlier, we missed it, go ahead and pop it up there so we can see it.
0: What I was going to say is that the eye color thing can be, you know, a, a hinky circumstance in, in Contemporary because the author isn't paying attention. But in some circumstances, it could actually be detrimental to your story. Like if you suddenly have Derek, who's not an alpha, flashing red eyes, do only alphas have red eyes in Teen Wolf? Yes. Or if suddenly his eyes stop being blue and they're gold?
1: Uh, so he suddenly doesn't feel guilty about I've always right. interpreted. Right. So, i always, I've always interpreted the blue color to be actually feeling. This is my headcanon. Is that the blue, blue is about guilt, over a death, as opposed to just they killed somebody because. I don't. It doesn't make sense to me. What somebody died near you, and so therefore your eyes. It just it's com- so completely illogical.
0: Um. Well, it's actually my headcanon that they made Loki's eyes blue on purpose in Avengers. They didn't retcon that. His eyes were blue. That really creepy blue. Of the scepter. In the movie.
1: Yeah they were blue. And aren't Tom Hiddleston's eyes green?
0: And then after his Hulk smash. Not so much. So I'm not sure that was a retcon. I think that was something that. um, Joss Whedon wrote. That the rest of them kind of forgot about. Until they needed it. Or wanted it to be um, relevant. Because outside the influence of the scepter, Loki wasn't interested in taking over the Earth. He just wanted to rule Asgard. He wasn't that ambitious. He wasn't interested in taking over other planets. He just wanted to sit on his brother's throne. So it was obvious that Thanos was influencing him. And that's what Joss Whedon intended to show. And they just set it aside until it was interesting again. I bet Marvel was like... We let Joss Whedon kill one of our characters, and now our whole fandom's mad at us. <laughs> Didn't know they cared so much about Colson. Now, what the fuck are we gonna do? <laughs> we let Joss Whedon joss us. Because <laughs> the fandom went, nope. Showed up at conventions with Colson's Alive t shirts because they were like fucking serious. <laughs>
1: Okay, so there's a question about when you're doing the background work on a character, do you just go through and write a bio for them, or do you answer? Do you go th- through and write a bio for them, or do you just answer general background questions? Um,
0: I have a character profile sheet I can give you.
1: Okay. Um, I'm going to read.
0: Um, Here's where I pulled off the Adobe Education Exchange, which I think is really cool. Let me put it in. I'll put it in the link library for you guys.
1: Okay, so when we did the... For the Feeding Frenzy series Bible, because I started in this whole thing, I took my character bio for Tony and I stripped it down to... Uh, I stripped it down some. I didn't strip it down a ton. But this is what it says about him. So I've got his basic bio, which is name, date of birth, place of birth, who his father was, where his father was born, his father's status as the only child, blah, 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 who his father's parents were. Um... His mother, same thing about his mother, how many siblings he has, um, any notes about any living maternal or paternal family, who his close friends are, any additional notable family members who has, and, and other friends information, which was added by people in the frenzy who wanted him to know certain people. And then I re- and then the rest of it is key traits. He's an extrovert, has a good sense of humor, consummate flirt, though he, the more he truly likes someone, the less likely he is to flirt. He has an overdeveloped appreciation of the absurd. He's witty, intelligent, easily bored, excellent multitasker, works well alone but prefers to work with others, likes being part of a team, moderately wealthy due to a small trust fund from his mother that he eventually managed to wrest away from his father during college. Then there's some deep details about his finances. He would rather knock out his mundane work alone in a couple of hours at night and then spend his time solving cases and watching people to figure out what makes them tick. Um, he has most people figured out and hates how predictable people are. He's loyal to Gibbs because he believes Gibbs is loyal to him and people being loyal to Tony have been in short supply in his life prior to meeting Gibbs. But he also finds Gibbs predictable and he doesn't think on it too much because there's a well of disappointment waiting there for him if he delves too deeply into it. He goes to him, his movie thing is part of um, his better memories of his mother. He's not close with his father and is fine with that. Um, finds himself disappointed in people who fall for his father's bullshit as he finds his father transparent. He plays the piano, guitar, and the ukulele, rarely plays for others, and then usually strangers or people he's close to. Sings well, considers his home as a refuge, and only has people over that he trusts. He never brings hookups back to his place. Uh, There's information about why he bought a twin bed, um, uses books, movies, and TV shows to help frame his thought process for the benefit of others because he struggles to explain the intuitive leaps he makes. An abstract thinker with an aptitude for problem solving that extends to excellence in intelligence analysis. Sees the answer before he can logically connect the dots, so he tends to withhold his gut reaction while he works out the facts to support it. When he does share the gut answer, people tend to scoff at it and call it dumb luck when he's found to be right. For example, the wife did it. He downplays his intelligence a lot because no one cared in college and it didn't go down so well in Peoria. He worries about taking the management path at NCIS because he doesn't want to be a paper pusher. He's also not keen on bossing people around. He finds it tedious to have to tell people what to do because he's never been sure why they can't figure out what to do for themselves. Plus, he'd rather eat his own toenails and deliver performance evaluations. So, <laughs> And then there's a full timeline of his life after that. And then it Beyond that, there's information about him and what key episodes there were by season. And Reading so that- his
0: character profile, all I could think is her OCD has never been framed better for me. Really? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Why is that? I don't know.
0: There's just there's just something about it. Just it just it's just it was like, yeah. There you go, girl. <laughs> I can't even put my finger on it, really.
1: But anyway, so that, so yes, I do, I personally do more than just get, work up their biographical details. I do work out how they interact with the world, how they think, Um, you know, when are they extroverted? When are they introverted? Are they an introvert or an extrovert? Are they kind of a hybrid? Um, Do they like a lot of alone time? I mean, I work all that stuff up and I think about it. So yeah, but just basic, even if just for some people just writing up the basic biographical information would be a start. <laughs> you know just start that's that's a that's a start. Cuz at least you'll be able to keep their basic details straight, where they were born, how many siblings they have, you know, potentially how many cousins do they have rolling around out in the world. And Ellie who participated in the relay said there were no surprises for those <laughs> of us who were writing because Right?
0: (laughs) That's actually really important because when it comes to writing in a group and we're actually going to do a podcast on writing in a group after Feeding Frenzy comes out which I think is probably when it will be more um, valuable after you you see how we did it, after you see the proof of our work um, is that you do have to pay attention to things like a character profile and a timeline and when you're working cooperatively with a whole bunch of different authors you want you don't want to let your ego get in the way.
1: Right. You need to be unique in the group as opposed to, especially when you're all writing the same character. It's, it it's bad enough when you're all writing different characters interacting with a, with one set of events, right? So that's, there's two ways to do it, right? A group story is multiple characters interacting with the same set of events or one character moving through different events. And when you're all writing the same character, it is really either way, which is, you gotta you gotta stick to the the meat. If somebody if, if it's main if there's a character moving through the series, you gotta stick to what that character's bio is. Everybody does. If if there's an agreed upon set of events and everybody's writing different characters interacting with those events, you gotta stick to the agreed upon set of events. And when people don't, it goes it goes crazy. Now, for instance, people pointed out in the chat room, one of the things I stripped out of the character bio was anything related to the shepherds. <laughs> Because I wouldn't put my personal headcanon into, beyond what I already did, but I wouldn't put that piece into a group writing environment. Because it it, it also, because it wouldn't make sense. It wasn't going to come up. Right. And people did ask, so like there's part, there's some of the stuff I glossed over were things that people asked to be added. Like, you know, they wanted him to have been gone to school with John Shepard or they wanted him to know this person or um, they wanted him to have also like maybe had, um, there was some other character that somebody wanted him to have met in college. And so as long as it didn't conflict with anybody's plans, we put it in that, that's not a problem. Um, but the basics had to come from somewhere. And so I stripped down my character bio for Tony that I use and that's what cause my, why do extra work for myself um, creating a whole new bio just doesn't make a lot of sense
0: no and also it can be very difficult um, to uh, completely dismantle your head canon. you can ignore certain elements but uh, if you if you completely dismantle the character in your head and rebuild them it it can cause you to have uh, problems in your narrative. Yeah. You can stumble a lot.
1: That's why there are elements I change from story to story, but in general, I try to keep the, the core of the character the same because otherwise I would not be having any like, real consistency with how I write Tony. And so now some people don't want consistency. They want to write him dramatically differently all the time, but that doesn't work for me. Um, that's not the way I approach it. But yeah, so there's stuff I take out because my headcanon is about the shepherds didn't have any place in a group writing challenge like that. So that's why that's not in there. Um, but there's a lot of stuff in there that speaks to Tony's motivations. And motivations um, are, are driven by that wants and needs things, Right. More so, I think, than and it's actually conflict, too. Internal conflict can also come from wants and needs not being met. But your wants and your needs drive your motivations. I think of GMC, wants and needs speak to motivation almost more than anything else. Obviously, sometimes um, motivations drive you to a goal, but sometimes there's not an obvious connection between the motivation and the goal, unless you spell it out for the reader. Because they can be, they can seem very disconnected unless the connection is explained. And that comes back to what drives the character. How are they filling the needs that they have by reaching that goal? And the thing that may be driving them to reach that goal is the thing you have to really work on. Anyway, so that's why there's a lot of things in his character bio that speak to his motivations with his background and why he interacts with people the way he interacts, which all stems from wants and needs.
0: You look at a character like Hannibal Lecter. He knew we were going to go there, right? Um, His pathology is is shaped by the murder of his family and the consumption, the forced consumption of his sister. Um, I don't actually know what the circumstances were for him in the TV show, if it was similar to that. Um, but this pathology shaped him as a, as a very young boy. And it follows him throughout his life. In, um, in July of next year, I'm going to ride him as a sentinel. But in the moment that his parents are killed, instead of... He's, he, he, he's going to come online as a sentinel. And they're not going to get an opportunity to, to touch his sister. Because he, he's going to kill them. Because they would probably underestimate him because of his size... And not understand what was happening until it was way too late. Way too late. And so, by the time he uh, meets Will Graham, and um, I think that Will will probably come online when he meets Hannibal. Uh, he he settled in his life. Um, he's uh, probably working as a psychiatrist, um, having done surgery, but maybe his senses, as he's aged, he can't really control his senses without a guide, and he doesn't have one. And so he's moved from surgery to um, psychiatry. Uh, he, it's the same move he makes in canon. I'm not sure why he moved from surgery to to psychiatry. Really, in canon, he says it's because he killed the patient, but really, Hannibal, were you just upset that you killed him and you couldn't take your liver for dinner, or or what?
1: I think I think it's that. um
0: or was it his desire to manipulate people so strong he had to get into psychiatry yeah. to do it?
1: <laughs> I think I think I think he wasn't as in control with surgery and and medicine as he wanted to be or as he needed to be. I think it was completely a control issue. Um, there's just he picked a bad field to be um, tra- trauma medicine or trauma surgery or ER surgery or ER. It's it's too it's a bad field to be in if you need to be in control. And I think that. That's one thing that psychiatry afforded him. Probably feeling like he was always in control.
0: I'd agree. And also I think if he has issues with bloodlust. And he probably would be a cannibal. That um, it would have been. You know psychologically taxing. To to be around. His food source.
1: <laughs> yeah. Although I think it depends upon how you write him. Um, as, as how much the. How much of the cannibalism. Is a need versus. A want yeah a want yeah and there are there are there's ways to write him where it's something you know that he's um that he indulges in because he wants to and because it makes him feel superior versus he has to so
0: it, you, know, you it was- know honestly, I don't see Hannibal all that different from a race, he obviously doesn't have the biological impulse to eat other people, but He does have really, he does consider people food. He says he sees no difference between a human being and a pig. And so that's something to keep in mind when you're writing Hannibal is that you need to understand his mindscape, whether it makes you sick or not. You need to know that he doesn't consider people, rude people, to be actual human beings. He thinks of them as pigs. So Hannibal would probably not even say he was a
1: cannibal. No, I don't think he would. But he clearly doesn't see all people as pigs. It's just once somebody hits that um... threshold. And that could be the part of the issue with medicines. He sees too many people that have hit the pig threshold. Because you're going to run into a fuck ton of rude people in the emergency room.
0: Yeah, you certainly are. But when I write him as a sentinel, it will be because he couldn't handle his senses as a surgeon. And it was um, ethically he couldn't continue to be a surgeon. So he uh, retreated into psychiatry. And then he, he meets Will Graham, who is a sensitive working for the FBI, who comes online as a guide. His I'm, not,
1: I'm not mad at this at all.
0: So it'll be a different... It'll be, it'll be a complete AU, obviously. It'll be very different. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Uh,
1: but he's a fascinating character. Um, Actually, he and Will both are fascinating.
0: You of look... You know, you could look at the cannibalism as a want. But you could also look at it as a need. If, during his psychological development, when he was... Assessing his physiological needs. And those. In the, in the, in the original can. He was forced to eat his sister. With the Nazi soldiers. Because they were starving. Um, and that association. With people and food. Hammered into his psyche. Then. As an adult. He would see. Rude people. As literally. No, no different than a pig. Edible. That's food. And he needs to eat. And he might get psychological pleasure of eating his victims. Finally making them useful to him. Or it could just be a want because he's like, I killed you because you were rude, and now I'm gonna eat you because I can. But you could write it either way. You know, how deep is his pathology? Does he recognize? the the ethical issues? Does he care? Has he not gotten caught because he doesn't want to go to jail? Or has he not gotten caught because he doesn't want to give up eating people and he knows they won't feed him people in jail? I mean, or is he not, you know, interested in getting caught and so focused on protecting himself because he knows the food's going to be shitty in the asylum, whether he gets people or not?
1: well i think you know i and and you can even look at it that you know um you can even write it that hannibal doesn't really care all that much one way or the other about going to jail um i really i I really like the interpretation that he's uh, they can't really model um model him based upon what they they know of other serial killers because he's completely different that, um, he's probably killed a lot more people than they will ever know because, you know, he, he functions as quote unquote, the Chesapeake Ripper, um, when he wants to do it, make a display of, of what he's doing, but you know, he's killing beyond that, right?
0: Yeah. Because he has the ability to mimic other killers. Um, he has, um, he doesn't have a pathology as far as his M.O. is concerned. Uh, and because he does not have that pathology. And he's not existing in a fantasy circumstance. And traditionally with a serial killer. Uh, they will have a um, a fantasy killing. That they will relive mentally over and over and over and over and over again into their brain. Until they can no longer sustain it. And it becomes unsatisfying. Then they will seek out a victim and try to re- repeat that fantasy on their victim and how that victim responds during their fantasy shapes their fantasy as they move forward. So the next victim might be more of a complicated kill, but the elements of his fantasy will remain and, but they will mature and remain not the same, but there'll be a maturity. So you will see a maturity in his victims, but Hannibal, Hannibal does not have that.
1: No. He kills when he wants, how he wants. And what little they predicted of his pathology, like the Sounders of Three, is only because he chose to. And I think that's one of the things I've seen pointed out in multiple stories, was that because he doesn't have a fixed pathology, that what they do know of his pattern might never, might never hold. It might not hold true. Because he could change in an instant just because he wants to. That he only indulges in this pattern because he chooses to. It is not something he doesn't have control over.
0: And most serial killers don't have control over it. Their, their pathology drives them. But Hannibal doesn't have that. He also has something that a lot of serial killers don't. He has wealth and means. Which means he could kill in California and be back in his home in Baltimore the next day. Meanwhile, cops and the FBI are searching for a killer in California, but the killer's already back in his home in Baltimore eating whatever he would like.
1: Potentially <laughs> eating what he got in California. <laughs> um, the farmer's markets in California are better this time of year. <laughs> um and he literally killed a farmer, because that's the kind of joke that he would tell. <laughs>
0: um, but yeah, I mean, so when you have a serial killer with those kinds of means, um, he only kills in the Baltimore area to fuck with Jack Crawford.
1: Right. Jack Crawford could have made, probably saved a lot of lives, honestly, by just letting it go. <laughs> I don't mean not hunt for the killer, but his him turning Hannibal into his white whale just in, made Hannibal want to engage with him. and talk. To it him
0: encouraged him. And, more killings than there ever would and have be, been.
1: And beat him, right? So I think a lot of those theatrical murders were because Jack Crawford couldn't back off. It, not, not that he should back off from hunting a killer, but his obsession... He's supposed to be focusing on the killers he can catch. His obsession with the Chesapeake Ripper. And I understand why he was obsessed, because of the whole Miriam last thing. Um, but his obsession was a problem and but also Hannibal,
0: Hannibal's activities encouraged others in the area as well
1: right baltimore there should not have been that many really grotesque serial killers i mean it's like that episode of um actually it was it was sniper zero where they explore this concept about you know, viral behavior in numbers um mm-hmm. to talk about people painting their house bloom that's why there had been this escalation and people being you know yesterday somebody might have beating somebody to death but today they're going to shoot them with a sniper rifle because they just saw somebody being shot with a sniper rifle well so you've got these hand these chesapeake ripper murders is encouraging like other bizarre behavior and it's but,
0: like well i can do better than that guy
1: yeah i'm more I fucked
0: mean, up than he is i'm gonna show everybody
1: but jack you know jack is jack is jack's obsession with hannibal and with the chesapeake ripper rather was it's a lot the way Gibbs was obsessed with Aerie, right? And we see what destructive things come out of those kinds of obsessions, because they're not supposed to be obsessed with one criminal. Right? If you don't catch him and it becomes a cold case, you move on. But he just stayed obsessed, and he kept putting resources into it, and Hannibal just kept playing him because he could.
0: And in the end, In the end, Jack Crawford in the TV show did not care one bit if he destroyed Will Graham in the process.
1: Um... I don't know that I... I think that...
0: I think he considered him, considered him collateral damage.
1: I think he cared. But I don't think he'd let it stop him. Um,
0: Which speaks a lot to his pathology.
1: Yeah. Because he really believed that, you know, he had, to, he had to do this. But he... The thing is, he had, he had justifications for it. This is one of the things you have to look at in characterization. Is the characters who will talk the they'll they'll say all the right things but it they're actually being motivated by something much more base than what they're saying so jack is wasn't motivated in my opinion to catch the chesapeake ripper to get justice for the victims or to prevent future deaths that wasn't what he was actually motivated by It was revenge. It was revenge. It was pure and simple revenge. And his inability to be honest about that put him in a situation of where he kind of wound up gaslighting everybody around him when they would try to rein him in or try to get him to back off. And it also put him in a position where, because he wasn't being honest about his own motivations, so this is where motivations and goals come in. His goal is to catch the Chesapeake Ripper, but the why is really important in this situation because when. He's failing, and it should become a cold case, and he just keeps pushing, pushing, pushing. I'm going to, you know, it becomes his white whale. Um, his motivation for why he's catching the cat Chesapeake Ripper isn't isn't what it should be for a member of law enforcement. And he's got the power to put a lot of resources to bear for the wrong motivation. And they should be focusing on another killer, and instead they're focused on, a, actually at that time, a killer that wasn't even active at, at the beginning of the show. The Chesapeake Ripper was not active at the beginning of the TV show. And so that motivation is really important because Jackson's ability to be honest with himself means that because he, he was putting it out there that he had these upstanding motivations when in reality it was just revenge, right? It was just revenge and anger that the Chesapeake Ripper basically had bested him. Um, is that when... I think he would have, that's why I think he would have cared, but fundamentally it wouldn't have stopped him about the damage done to Will because he would have justified it because he, with his pure motives, that he's lying to himself about. And it becomes a whole big comp, but human, the human psyche is very complicated. So, what it, is- it does,
0: what it does is it, um, because Jack is lying to himself and Hannibal is lying to everybody else and Will Graham is in, in the middle, he's literally um, trapped between two monsters. In some ways, Jack Crawford in the TV show is just as monstrous as Hannibal Lecter. He's even a cannibal. He doesn't even know it, though.
1: Well, the un- the unwilling cannibalism will just have to forgive everybody in Baltimore. For. Right, right. Um,
0: but what I'm saying is, is that he's... I mean, his pathology is so deep and ugly that Will Graham is is basically, bless his heart, stuck between two monsters. And honestly, like by the end of the series... I don't know that he picked the wrong monster. Maybe going over that cliff with Hannibal was the only piece he'd ever have. Maybe the maybe the honest monster is the better choice.
1: Yeah, the one who yeah could be
0: the you know because because Hannibal is, is is monstrous and he doesn't pretend otherwise. You know, um, until you know, at, at least after he gets caught, right? Because. But well, Jack Crawford still hides behind his his his, his justice
1: of some point in the chat room that that doesn't that will became a monster in his own right in a lot of ways. I would say I agree mm-hmm. um but of, of all the people of all the people who wound up engaging in monstrous behavior, the person who I think had the most reason for it, honestly, was will. And that he,
0: I think Wills is a self-defense mechanism.
1: Yeah, well he's he's stuck okay, so stuck between two monsters um and framed for the murders of this killer who he has let get in his head. Right? Cuz his empathy means that he's been channeling Hannibal. And Hannibal's wants and desires, right? So he's got that in his head, and he, he, tr- he. Jack knew it was too much. He knew it was too much for Will, and Jack didn't care, because all Jack cared about was catching Hannibal, even if it cost him Will. Even though I think he would have, reg- I think he cared, and I think he would have regretted it. I don't think it would have stopped him. So Will's stuck between these two things, and then he's got Hannibal, who is messing with his mind and basically letting his brain cook to see what he'll do. And I mean, even Alana in in ways was not good for Will. She saw him as a child in a lot of ways. I think she saw him as somebody who couldn't take care of himself. I think she infantilized him, even if she was even as she was romantically at- attached to him. I think she was curious about him, even if she tried to rein in her own um kind of clinical curiosity about him. And and then he is okay, if, if you're squeamish about this kind of thing, you might want to mute the podcast for a few seconds. And then he he's, he's drugged while his brain is cooking and fed the ear of a young, you know, it's stuffed down his throat of, of a young woman he loved that he saw as a daughter. And he thinks he's framed for her murder. I mean, is this, that's just the beginning of the stresses he's put under. And then he's put under the control of somebody like Chilton for months on end. To try to pick apart Will's mind. What happened to Will. And the actions he took. And the path that he went on. um, uh, Of the three. Of the three of them. His journey into being a monster. Was the most understandable to me. When you look at motivations. I get why Will went the way he went. There were times I'd watch the show. Especially when he was looking for. When he was trying to hunt Hannibal down. When I watched it, that I wished he would back off. I wished he would just get back to himself and just walk away from it all. Um, like he did in the movies, honestly, because you could see him self destructing with with this path he was on. And I th- and you got to wonder with with the revenge quest he initially went on was he mirroring Jack? He was mirroring Hannibal with his actions, and was he mirroring Jack with his motivations? Because Will is that's what he does he mirrors other people right so anyway
0: you look at chilton you look at chilton he's he's just as monstrous as the rest of them
1: oh he's honestly
0: he's so detestable in silence of the lambs that i actually felt sorry for hannibal
1: he's honestly chilton is ron weasley think about it he's not he's not as smart as will or, or hannibal um he's not as gifted as hannibal Or any of the other therapists, he's not as gifted as Alana, and he makes his and he basically convinced Abel Gideon that Abel was Abel that Gideon was the Chesapeake Ripper. Um, He was he was he was just a detestable Weasley, the man who felt like, you know, he's stuck running a a, a, a mental asylum, basically a hospital for the criminally insane, Um, and he doesn't get any of the respect or accolades that he thinks he's due. 'Cause he's just fundamentally not very good at it. So and then they put and then they put people in his under his, you know, control. Honestly,
0: Hannibal totally should have eaten his face. Should have totally eaten his face.
1: <laughs> right off. Um so you've got Will so so in a very short period of time, right? Um the major influences that Will is kind of mirroring that he's probably taking on board empathetically are Hannibal, Jack, Alana and Frederick Chilton. That's not good. (laughs) At all. Because honestly, I had big issues with Alana too. I had big issues with the way she acted with Will if he wasn't if he wasn't a she was never in my opinion a very good friend to him because if he wasn't a romantic interest he was somebody that she either treated like a child or that she wanted to treat like a test subject test that she really was curious about you know and it's like nobody trusted him to honestly the person who gave him the most autonomy was hannibal Even though Hannibal was manipulating him to watch his brain cook, Hannibal at least didn't try to censor him and try to talk him out of how he felt. He was surrounded by assholes. This is true.
0: Honestly, I think that was the biggest misstep um, beyond framing Hannibal for the murders that he was committing. Um, I think his biggest misstep was the encephalitis because he was in a position to be Will Graham's savior. Wilgram Will Graham thought he was going insane and the encephalitis was, was doing it to him. And if and if Hannibal had positioned that a little bit better, and maybe this is saying more about my, my pathologies and I want to. If he had sacrificed that scientific curiosity for a place of manipulation in Will Graham's life, Will Graham would have looked at him like a fucking hero. Mm-hmm.
1: And actually, that'd be an interesting canon divergence to write Like, point. Is it like made because Hannibal was going to Bedelia for therapy? Because the truth is, most therapists have a therapist. And I think they need to because therapists deal with really shitty stuff day in, day out, all day, every day. And they need somebody to keep them grounded. I've never had a therapist that didn't have their own therapist. Um, but so, what if, if Bedelia could just say the right thing to Hannibal? you know, the right thing and the right, you know, about, to him about, you know, do you want to, about, just not, not on, not on point, because Hannibal wouldn't like to be told what to do, but just something that makes him think about the situation with Will differently, that, about endearing Will to him, rather than treating him like an oddity to be studied.
0: Or an adversary.
1: Yeah. I I don't know that he ever treated Will like an adversary.
0: Well, he framed him for murder. That's adversarial.
1: But he just framed him for his own crimes as opposed to some other crime. This is that's, true. That's almost intimate for Hannibal.
0: That's like saying, look, but have Hannibal, my stuff. You, like- you, you can play with my toys.
1: I mean, think about think about how often Hannibal got really offended when somebody tried to take credit for his work.
0: <laughs> you can have my GI Joes.
1: Yeah. It, it was almost... It was almost like an overture, you because know, it's like he he killed everybody else who got any credit for his work. So, and yet he gave Will credit for all of his work.
0: That's actually you. You know, you're you're honestly kind of right. It's still terrible because I hate the idea of him being in that place with Chilton. Um, we can share the red crayon. No, oh, sharing the red crayon serious business.
1: It really is. So. So it's you know, like, it's like splitting the Twinkie. Um who's actually a twink. Um <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna start making I'm gonna start making murder jokes and I'm just really... <laughs> No. I'm
0: gonna have a moment
1: with myself. I just But when you look at like when you really dig you into know, the Well honestly Hannibal's...
0: the fact that Chilton survived all that is more than enough proof that Will Graham is not a serial killer because um somebody should have should've ate his face off.
1: You know, and the thing is, here's the thing. The thing that pissed me off. The person who believed Will in all of that, Beverly, got killed. Um yeah. I had a problem with that. That that that's one thing I would not do. You know, who, I, I
0: did, would, did 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 Hannibal kill Beverly in Canon?
1: I think it was Hannibal. I think I think it was. Yeah. Really grotesquely. Um, sorta. It was me. It was sort of I guess if you could step back and look at it, it was aesthetically very beautiful. But yeah, um, I think that... I think... I think Will needs that touchstone, if you're going to write. Because he doesn't have... I think Zeller and Price were always willing to be suspicious of him. Uh, and Beverly, even when he was... Even when he, with all the evidence, Beverly believed him. She was still trying to prove that he didn't do it while he was in the asylum. So... But anyway... Beverly's um, totally a bro. Yeah. When you look at the wants and needs in... um, Of of both Hannibal and Will, those two, it's very complicated. Um, Will
0: wants and needs stability. He does.
1: And I think that, you know... um, Hannibal could be that for him.
0: But, you know, know, honestly, as... Okay, this is going to sound really terrible, but it's true. I think that of all the characters on the show, Will Graham is the most psychologically healthy. He knows he has a problem. He recognizes his own issues. Whereas practically nobody else does. They're all drowning in their neurosis and, and pathology, and not a single one of them... Jack Crawford is on the edge of a psychotic break, and he has no clue.
1: Well... Honestly, I don't think... Okay, so second most... Well, Beverly's... Well, if, if just count the secondary characters. So if you, like, Okay, the okay, main character. yeah. So Beverly's probably just fine. But um, be- behind Will is unfortunately Hannibal.
0: Right? Because <laughs> Hannibal knows what he is. He just don't give a fuck. Right. But Jack Crawford assumes that he is psychologically stable as fuck. When really, really, between the grief of his wife's cancer and um, his wife's circumstances, his white whale hunt for the Chesapeake Ripper, um, the stress of his job, the way he is using his personnel, the loss of Miriam, he is a festering psychological wound, and he is on the brink of a psychotic episode from the moment you see him on screen.
1: Yeah. He's a hot mess. He's a hot mess. and it, But it's part of setting up but it, one of the reasons why it works is because it speaks to all of Jack's crap, all of his internal motivation and goals and his conflict and all of that stuff, and how he acts out on that sets up um, the external conflict for the other characters that feeds into their internal conflict, which is, we talked about conflict in, in another podcast. And that is so important because a character's internal conflict defeats directly to their motivation. So.
0: And I think most of the secondary characters are actually focused on managing Jack Crawford. Yeah.
1: No, I don't think Jack was sleeping with Miriam. He was so focused on Miriam because she was a trainee that he had gotten involved in the investigation, and she did act outside of regulations in what she did, but she vanished on his watch. He got a trainee, a trainee vanished on his watch, and he had assumed all that time that this trainee that he was responsible for, who didn't have the training, honestly, she wasn't a full field agent. She shouldn't have been out in the field on her own. Um, he assumed that she was a victim of the Chesapeake Ripper all that time, and um, and it. I think the guilt just he couldn't deal with it. And they should have. His boss responsibly should have never, from that moment on, should have taken that case away from Jack. It should have been somebody else's case. He should have never been able to touch it again. Not as punishment, but because it would It would have been clear that Jack would have been driven by um, by um
0: his his involvement was too personal. he had no ability whatsoever to be impartial regarding the investigation of the, of the Chesapeake River
1: so why would he treat will the same way? Um, he didn't treat will the same way um, will actually wasn't I don't, did will I don't think will really investigated, he wasn't supposed to be investigating crimes by himself. will was basically
0: coddled a lot by ZBAU. Um, maybe because he's psychologically vulnerable or maybe because they don't want to risk him because he is just a teacher at the, the academy. He's not a full field agent. Um, I don't think he gets left alone a lot.
1: Not really. Not really. I mean, he spends a lot of, and, and a lot of times when he's not with Jack, he's with Hannibal, which Jack trusted Hannibal Uh to help look after will and make sure that will was okay uh so i don't you don't except when you know you don't see will going off on his own very often and he's not supposed to be but also will has had i believe will if i remember correctly because it's sometimes i conflate books movie verse versus books verse movie verse tv verse Mm -hmm. but i believe will just didn't pass a psych screening to get into the because it was empathy disorder to get into the fbi um he was also older than Miriam, you know. So there's like And he experience. was a man. And he's a man, and that's perceived differently. So, and he is an expert in his field. Yes, that's true. Miriam was Mir- Miriam was from the FBI Academy. She was a trainee. So it just I think that it it would be different to Jack and be perceived differently uh, by literally everybody would have, would perceive. Will and and Miriam differently, but Jack did not ever. I don't think he ever sent Will out to investigate on his own. Now he and Hannibal looked into stuff profiling-wise, but you know that was supposed to be Will's role was doing profiles. You go out and look at bodies and get in trying to get into the head of killers, but the actual catching of the killers was supposed to be Jack's job. It's supposed to be. Supposed to be. Yeah, the morbid party trick. Um, but anyway, so.
0: And I was telling Jilly a couple of weeks ago that I really wish just once in the show that Will would have turned his empathy on Chilton and ripped him to pieces.
1: That would have been so satisfying, wouldn't it?
0: Just drag it, just 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 made him just like like psychologically ate his face.
1: And you could, <laughs> yes. Like, and you could do it. If, if you did that thing, if you did the point where, like, I think Bedelia would be a really good. A person to do this because I think she would really want Hannibal fixated potentially on if Hannibal to her she never really I think she was really torn with wanting Hannibal's attention but also really not wanting it and if Hannibal is focused on somebody else he's not going to be focused on her which I think she would consider to be a win um
0: and a, um, and give her the ability to make a very quiet exit
1: right so if she gets Hannibal to you know to kind of want to endear will to him and so. Hannibal gets Will better, and he then he starts encouraging Will to be more assertive. Say the things you think. You don't have to keep all of this, all these, all of these less pleasant, your less savory thoughts. You don't have to keep them to yourself. Honesty is going to help you. If he starts like encouraging him in that direction, that could lead to a Will who meets Sheldon and just flays him alive verbally, which could be super sad. Cuz it's
0: really annoying to see him repeatedly call Will a, a psychopath and Will never lashes out back and just to show him just to show him exactly what he is. And maybe it's because that would be giving Chilton what he wants. But it wouldn't be giving what Chilton wants. It would be giving him what he thinks he wants. But Chilton does not want the full force of Will's empathy on him.
1: And the funny thing is about Chilton calling Will a psychopath is it's so bizarre because psychopathy is related to the inability to feel empathy, which is sort of the exact opposite of the problem that Will has.
0: I read a fic earlier where he called him a sociopath and Hannibal laughed in his face because what? (laughs) I mean, he was so startled he laughed. (laughs) <laughs> how could you call somebody with an empathy disorder a fucking sociopath? That makes no sense.
1: <laughs> so I need, I need the story. Did you link me this story? I think I did. She keeps all the links to herself. It's, I mean, you know, punished, honestly, she's punishing me for how long I kept Blackbird from her. Um, but when it comes to more, I would say almost more so than. Wants and needs so important. GMC so important in every character that you write. But man, you got to get a lock on that in the Hannibal fandom, or it's going to fall. It's going to hit wrong.
0: Or in it's any gonna- fandom where you're going to write a really complicated character like Hannibal, um, and there are some extremely complicated characters out there. I think that um, uh, Riddick is a very complicated character. Um, uh, what's his name? Harvey in. Um, White, not not white collar, but um suits.
1: Okay, yeah. Harvey Specter.
0: Um House is a yeah. very complicated character. I don't remember the story cuz I've read like four today. I'll, I'll have to think about it.
1: She's she's hitting a lot of anti-heroes, classic anti-heroes.
0: But they're but they're very they're very complicated characters.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, they they are the anti makes gives them gives them complication that the that they you know whether it's the anti hero or anti villain they have complication that wouldn't exist for a villain or a hero
0: um draco malfoy can be very complicated
1: you so you could you're strip him
0: down him. and make him simple which is not fun i mean why you know, what's the point
1: yeah if he's a central character i wouldn't want him simple so yeah you're going to have to you're going to have to get in there and work work it um But some characters, it's it you have to even so like always pay attention to with these characters to the wants and needs and the GMC and make sure it's it's all tracking and it's not just that one character. It's how your characters interact with each other, right? Because they feed into each other's conflict and they feed into each other's motivation. So, but Hannibal and Will almost more so than others because especially if you are getting them together. You've got a Will who's getting together with a cannibal. A cannibal serial Cannibalistic serial Not even the cannibal side of it. That's not even the issue. It's the serial killer side of it. You've got a Will who's getting together with a serial killer. You've got to work out. you got to take the path of how did Will get from point A to point B. And if you fail, it, it could be a failure in your whole plot because people just won't believe it. Suspension of disbelief belief issue. You know, and it's like... What did you say to me the, the earlier Did My suspension of disbelief is in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> I went on vacation um, <laughs> to the land where everything will kill It was a hard fall. It, it was, was a really, fall. really hard fall. It went to where everything will kill you. Um, <laughs> or kill me, anyway. Um,
0: I would not survive a trip to Australia. I'm aware of this, I understand my weaknesses. Yeah,
1: I would neither. I mean I, I do don't, I don't think my family would, I think they they like they'd like hide they'd like hide my ticket confirmation from me or something. Like, you know you can't go. Um Although if I ever make it down there there've been several of our crew who have been like, They're gonna hook me up, we're gonna have a good time before I die. <laughs> 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 we're go out a good, with a
0: bang. We're gonna
1: have a, gonna have a good time, Jilly, before those funnel webs get to you. Um <laughs> Rabby, seriously, I've like every venomous spider in the United States has found me, and we don't—we don't—they're not as scary as the ones that you guys have there. So, and I nearly died every time. So ah, that's funny.
0: I think I could probably die in a bathtub in Australia. Surprise crocodile up the drain. I mean, it's just the kind of thing that would happen to me. Don't believe them, Misty. Don't 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 believe them. They're trying to lure you into a <laughs> into a nightmare. There's a reason I mean, why aliens never land on Australia.
1: <laughs> I mean, I live I live in Portland, okay? It's not like there's rattlesnakes on every corner, right? And yet, <laughs> I will manage to find whatever dangerous is around. It just flocks to me and tries to eat me. So, it's a thing.
0: Look, Australia's already tried to kill me once. I had to buy I didn't have it's, to but it's my mom spider yeah, the, my mom wanted this through this DVD of, of of an Elvis Presley movie and El, only Elvis Presley movie and the only way place I could find it was this shop in Australia. so I got it and um it comes in the mail. It takes a while and I open up a box and a big giant spider flops out of it. I swear to God I heard that spider land on my counter. i think i might have broke the sound barrier with my scream (laughs) it's just ridiculous it survived in that box the whole trip over
1: they will last for a while yeah the international spider
0: i killed it with the box and it came in (laughs)
1: Served it right. It's like this, if you're in a stowaway, and this is going to be the instrument of your demise.
0: Jesus, if my husband had seen it, he'd have been out in the front yard, like just kill it, just try, just set the house on fire. We'll, we'll get a new one.
1: <laughs> and y'all have heard how many times my vacuum cleaners had to been relocated to the porch because there's been a spider in it that <laughs> I didn't <have> to escape.
0: <laughs> they are not friends, and they're not food either.
1: I have. I was, I was bitten by a brown recluse when I was a sprout. Well, I was like 9 or 10. And um, I've got a big chunk of arm that isn't there. You know, it looks normal. Like, you look at it, there's just a scar. But if you feel it, there's no muscle or anything under there. There's just a, a little divot. There's not little. It's like the size of a golf ball. It's like divot of no muscle where it just ate away, you know, because that's what it does. It, it, it causes it causes flesh. I cannot necrosis. even
0: describe the look on my face right now. <laughs> <laughs> Overwhelming horror. I don't know.
1: <laughs> Brown is no joke, man. Those, those that what it does to you, the way it just kind of causes your flesh to rot. <laughs> but anyway, I mean, I was, I didn't, I, my fever was outrageous. I nearly died from, I nearly died from the fever. So. I was sick for a long time with that and now as an adult though all I've got is like this there's, there's no muscle under there I have less I have less arm muscle than some people do that is crazy
0: cakes girl crazy cakes so anybody have any questions about wants and needs and um the narrative structure and character profiles and, and how you would work that into your um into your work
1: because I know, I was talking to somebody after we did t- the conflict thing, and we've talked about G- We talk about GMC a lot, goals, motivation, conflict. After we did the po- conflict podcast, I was talking to somebody, and they talked about, like, it seems so complicated, like, figuring it all out. Um, but you don't have to look at it as, like, figure out their goals, figure out their motivations, although I think you actually figure out motivations first. Figure out their goals, figure out their conflict, figure out their wants, figure out their needs. It's not that at least to me, it's not that compartmentalized, but it's working up a character and a story and making sure that it all tracks. Now, sometimes when it comes to their internal motivations and goals, I mean, I do spell it out fairly explicitly, but some of it is just working up. It's just working up the character, right? You work up the character bio and, and with what, you know, seems logically consistent. Um,
0: and a lot of times you'll put things in your character profile that will never make it into your narrative.
1: Because it isn't it about,
0: right. Because it isn't about that. It's about you knowing and understanding your character. And if you know and understand your character in an intimate way, if you understand their wants and their needs and their desires and their ambitions, um, it will come out in your narrative in a, in a very natural way and you won't have to worry about it. Maybe if, if you do the work in the front then it'll come out of the end. You know your end product will, will reflect it, right? Because that's how your brain as a writer will work. You just gotta give the information it needs.
1: Exactly. It's it's you're given the tip of the iceberg, and you want to give it, but it needs to be the the right piece of information that people can kind of infer the things you aren't saying. Because there are times you want the you, the author shouldn't have to spell out everything, but if you connect the dots in the right way. The reader can can infer what they need to infer. Um, uh.
0: You shape your characters' wants in your character profile, and then um, if you're a plotter and you've and you've done your plot work, and you see events in your plot impacting your characters' wants um, and needs, then you need to reflect those changes in res- um in in response. Like if your character. Wants shelter. Or needs shelter. And so your first plot point is they get shelter. Okay that needs been met. So what's the next need? where if they want a companion. Okay they meet somebody out in the woods and bring them home. That's met. Where do you go from here? Your needs and your wants. Can impact your plot points. And your plot points should impact the needs and wants. Of your characters. It's a circle.
1: Yeah. And. And when it comes to wants, the things we get exposed to in life, your character gets exposed to, affects their wants. Right? They don't. They may not even be looking for a relationship, but they get exposed to the right person. Suddenly, they want a relationship because, it, and that's that's typical. So you don't actually have to. This actually became a point of contention for a couple of readers um, over my story de novo, which was that. They felt like that the relationship with Ian came out of the blue. Well, yeah, it did. It absolutely came out of the blue, which was the intention. I plotted it that way because I didn't want to write Tony like going through all this stuff and being prepared for relationship and seeking it. He wanted it once it was put in front of him. Even though the timing was awful. And that is sometimes the way life is. Sometimes life is not timed well. Well, honestly, the
0: timing is always awful.
1: (laughs) Yeah. It's always awful. So the timing sucks. And in the case of, in that particular story, um, once it was presented to him that he could have this, he wanted it and he had to ask himself the question, you know, does the fact that it's a bad time even matter? really does it because it's here this is this is what i've been presented with and do i want to deal with the inconvenience and the bad timing and all of that to have this and the answer was of course absolutely yes because you know ian um and that is and but that's life sometimes we want something we we didn't know we wanted because it's been put in front of us and your character you can have a character who's adamantly against a relationship. I don't want to be in a relationship. but It's a bad time for me. I'm focusing on my career. And then the right person's in their path. And then all of a sudden they're once.
0: You're like, change. damn it. Man, fuck you. Why are you so hot?
1: You're like, I had a plan. <laughs> I had a plan, Hannibal. I had a plan.
0: Or they're exposed to somebody that in the past they might that they would have wanted to be with, but didn't think they could be with. And now this person is in their path again giving off all the right signals and they're like well god damn it you're about 10 years too late but okay
1: <laughs> i was primed for this 10 years ago and right now i was working on my career but oh, all oh, well, right, <laughs> I, I, I'll, I'll make room whatever because <laughs> that's that's just the way the life goes that's that's your care you know you depending on the kind of story if if de novo had been strictly a romance that might have been an odd structure for it, but it wasn't. De novo's thematic, big thematic element was Tony coming into his own. And so and part of that, part of him coming into his own was getting into the place where he is he is better. He is doing better. And he is accepting good things into his life. And so when the opportunity presented itself, he bought a bigger bet. You know, because he was doing better, and so it was sort of the relationship with Ian was almost like symbolic of of how far he'd come in a relatively short period of time. That he embraced this opportunity when it was presented to him, even though the was shitty. But if if the story had strictly been a bit about finding finding love and Tony on the on the journey to finding love, the way that that structure would have been strange. I'm totally there with that, but that wasn't the thematic element of the story. So. You know,
0: But you do have to do pre- unpredictable things in your narrative because humans um, can have unpredictable moments.
1: Yeah, sometimes you get up and you trip over nothing and you break your foot and then your plans for the next few months are shot and you have to pants a Harry Potter story. Rude. <laughs> Shit happens.
0: That was so rude, Jillian.
1: <laughs> no, it wasn't.
0: <laughs> well, no, don't plan because you can't plan to be unpredictable, but leave yourself room for the unpredictable, which is why even in my zero draft, um, when I, I leave myself room for scenes that could take place between plot points that I have not decided on yet. Um, and I'm not afraid to strike something off my zero draft if it doesn't fit. So and leave yourself not- room for creativity.
1: And she's not afraid to put in a penguin when she needs one. Right. So
0: I wanted to pass the fuck out of a penguin because as I, a plotter, I do like to plan, but I also, like I said, i just, I leave myself room to play.
1: Now I have actually had like a plot note that is about something unpredictable and it just, but I don't mean like, like I'm not planning to be unpredictable, but it's more along the lines of, you know, I'll put a note in that something, something happens that day that was unpredictable that threw Tony's timing off. And I haven't worked out what that thing is yet because I'm, it's not a, it's not an important enough detail. It just needs to be something that throws him off. So I actually have had plot notes about something unplanned happen to Tony. So in that sense, yes, I planned to be unpredictable. That's not actually what we're talking about, which is that sometimes you just go, okay, I need, I need a moment here. I need some levity. Because sometimes when something is getting really heavy in the story, it's like you're to put some levity in. Or you need you an need emotional support penguin. Or whatever. And you've got to give yourself room to put that in.
0: And you also have to look at the elements that you're adding. And then weave them into the rest of your narrative. And in your rough draft, you got to look and see, okay, did I pick the right point for my penguin to appear? And I didn't. So I needed to establish his presence earlier in the story so when you read it you probably noticed an extra scene where sebastian goes out to the pier and interacts with avery before he has that conversation with weir about the penguins
1: yeah you could put and that is one of the benefits of not posting something you're not finished with if you wait till you're done is that you can make an impulsive decision not impulsive in a way that completely derails your plot, but that adds it up, that breath that you need sometimes. And you have the luxury to go back and make it look like it was supposed to be there all along. Whereas it's a little harder to do when you've been posting as you go. Not impossible, but I totally am. I'm, I'm totally all in on you edit your story when you need to edit it. But I mean, you know, like, if you
0: edit something crazy into it, just put an author note on your next chapter and say, Hey, you might want to go back and read chapters one through three because I did some stuff thanks right
1: and and that's <laughs> one of the you know the reader reader pair you know when you're reading a whip read at your own peril because i think the author should be able to go back and change things if they need to but a lot of times fandom acts like once you post it it's set in stone come on no that's my shit it's only set in stone if you've turned it into your publisher and they made they printed the book
0: and even then there's a second edition
1: <laughs> right and then it's only set in paper. Um, <laughs>
0: So if nobody has any other questions, I'm out of tea. It's not even great tea because I had to um I had to brew it um hot instead of doing my cold brew method.
1: Yeah.
0: I know. Yeah.
1: I mean it'll do, but it uh,
0: it's not great.
1: See she wants tea, but I need to pee, so wants,
0: yeah, needs. so wants, needs. Um so if we don't have any other questions, I hope this podcast was very beneficial um and that you uh keep it in mind as you're preparing um to write your nano and, and get your stuff all settled down. And um I hope you guys have a fantastic week. It is Sunday, right?
1: It is Sunday and I just realized that actually. <laughs> I was like it, tomorrow which means tomorrow is Monday which Anyways,
0: <laughs> you guys have a fantastic week, and we shall catch you later. Say goodnight, Jilly.
1: Good night, everyone.